Hello there. This is the Ludinus Podcast. I'm Nick Cummings, and I'm joined, as always, by Aaron Thayer. Hello, everyone. Today's topic uh, is a bit of a combination plate, uh, for those of you who like to mix and match. We had some news uh, recently out of the Game Developers Conference out in uh, San Francisco about... The changing face of game development, which obviously is going to be a big deal at this kind of thing, and they'll always try and hype it up, but this year there was legitimately a lot of news. Uh, specifically, a lot of talk about game engines, game technology, to, you know, the stuff you use to make games, to take it from concept to, like, kid paying $20 to make a guy jump on platforms, too. Uh, also, uh, virtual reality technology, which... Uh, went from kind of this quiet, slow burn thing over the last few years from the birth of Oculus and that Kickstarter campaign to, oh, wait, we're worth $2 billion and Facebook owns us now and everyone else <laughs> is making VR tech to compete, where we find ourselves today. And uh, 2015 is looking like a year where there's going to be a lot of shaking up in terms of what technology is used to develop games and who's trying to put this new um, interface technology into the hands of consumers. Uh, anyone who's ever used a Virtual Boy or tried out one of those just god-awful VR setups from the early 90s knows that this is not an easy sell on the uh, general population. So, Still a lot of bad memories about the Virtual Boy. Yeah, still a lot of like blinding headaches that come back to me, like acid flashbacks almost. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, I want to take a little time, Aaron, if this is uh, interesting to you, to kind of just yes. dive into... Uh, what's happening on those two fronts of this technology of game development in this year of uh, 2015 that we find ourselves in? Uh, let's start with the game engine thing, uh, because I think there's this interesting split happening where traditionally, you know, you think back to the last couple console generations beginning with the PS2, Xbox, GameCube, and then the 360, PS3, and uh, arguably the two GameCubes duct taped together that was the Wii. <laughs> Oh, come on. <laughs> Can we still make that joke? Is that, yeah. is that yeah. funny? It's it, relevant. I think it's yeah. funny again. It's yeah. been 22 and a half years. So yep. um, it used to be that like game technology was kind of just this proprietary thing for a long time. And really a lot of games, even back to like the 32-bit era, but especially 16 and 8-bit, every game pretty much had its own engine. Like yeah. you'd write it from scratch, you build it from the ground up. There was some shared technology, obviously, and uh, some stuff that was built into the platforms to distinguish them, like the Mode 7 scaling you remember from the Super Nintendo. Or even Nintendo. like BioWare's engine that they use, the Infinity Engine. Yeah, they love that Infinity Engine. So they were kind of like a hallmark almost or a staple of these companies, but um, not a whole lot of share technology. Like, okay. I guess BioWare, in that example, licensed out to, uh, I think Icewind Dale was made by a different company. And CD Projekt for the first Neverwinter, or I'm sorry, The Witcher. Yeah. But still very limited, right? Right, right. Uh, and then we kind of saw this thing happen, especially towards the end of that uh, sixth generation, the Xbox PS2 generation, where you started to see Unreal pop up in a lot of places. And it started to mm -hmm. become clear that uh, Epic Games, makers of Unreal, Unreal Tournament, Gears of War, eventually, uh, was running out of steam in a sense where they were like, hey, we can keep making awesome games. And they did for quite some time. Or... Or we could sell this cash cow we're sitting on, become a <laughs> licensing company that maintains an engine, and just rake in money from every game that is built with our stuff. Yeah. And that kind of ushered in this era that really came to life with the last console generation of, like, engines being the name of the game. No pun intended. I'm so sorry for that. <laughs> uh, but you saw Unreal Engine 3 everywhere on the Xbox yeah. 360, beginning with, like, Gears of War and then Unreal Tournament 3, I think. I believe so. That Which, splash screen was on so many games. Oh, yeah. It was generation. everywhere. It was in, like, weird stuff you wouldn't expect yeah. to see it in. I want to say that Lost Odyssey by Mistwalker, the, like, the um, 
the Sakaguchi JRPG for Xbox 360 was built on Unreal. Maybe I'm wrong. But... I wouldn't be surprised, though, because, like you said, it was everywhere. Yeah, ubiquitous. Uh, and then, you know, you saw other companies kind of following suit. Like, suddenly, uh, Crytek, which had made Far Cry and eventually was working on Crisis about the time Gears of War came out, they were like, wait, our games are worse than Epics, but we have this awesome <laughs> technology, too, that we can license out. And so the CryEngine became kind of this... Uh, third-party solution for a lot of companies so i'm spending a lot of time on these details just to set the scene for the fact that like it was kind of this closed market like game engines were being sold to other companies and licensed out to established major and mid-level developers but it was still kind of like you had to be established you had to be at a big company you really had to have a publisher in a lot of cases to be able to afford this tech it's not cheap even now still no and there's a lot of money and research and work that goes into building these things like the the way that they efficiently process graphics is still kind of cutting edge um I don't know if you've seen, there's a really cool tech demo. Um, I'll see if I can find a link for this episode. But uh, this uh, artist created a rendering of a, a Parisian apartment in Unreal Engine 4. Yeah. And the, there's this like walkthrough video and it's just stunning. The lighting effects. is perfect. Yeah. The couch, the cushions. If you squint, it looks absolutely real. Yeah. It's only really when it moves in certain ways that the mm-hmm. illusion is broken. But imagine that with like virtual reality technology and you start to understand the value of like why these companies and why there's so much money tied up in how you see and process and create graphics. Right. So anyway, that was like 2006, 2007 when we saw these engines really coming to light. Flash forward to like 2012, 2013, 2014 and this year and suddenly these engines are realized what we're seeing is companies moving two directions. Uh, One, you have the established companies like EA and Ubisoft and uh, any other like large level company kind of doubling down on its own proprietary technology to move away from licensing out this third-party technology from, like, Unreal or from uh, Crytek, that kind of thing. Uh, well, in one case, you have, um, you know, EA acquiring the Frostbite engine from uh, DICE, right. which they acquired. And that's powering anything from, like, you know, your Battlefields to your Dragon Ages. And it started out just as an engine in the 360 era, uh, powering, I believe the first game was on Bad Company 1, right? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. You can knock over trees. It was kind yeah. of cool at the time. And then, uh, you know, it's 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 this weird thing where all these companies have their own tech locked down now. It's, they're not licensing as much from these third parties that made their money up to this point off of all this stuff. Is it just them saving money? I, I can't imagine it's just that because the amount of money that they must have dumped into making Frostbite work. I mean, you saw how Battlefield sure. 4 launched. Yeah. <laughs> and 3, let's be fair. Right. It's a... It's, Obviously, that's it's a very buggy technology stack in some ways, but um, it gets good results. It gets the results they want, and I think it only got there because they threw because of like brute force and mm-hmm. lots of money and time. They said they were going to make it work. It's going to be used on all of our games in house, so it has to work. Right. Yeah. And so you know, by hook and by crook, they had to do this, and so they did, and it's done, and they're not going back at this point. Sure. Uh, where does that leave Unreal? Uh, well, it's all I know is it's free now. Yeah. So is that an indication of, and we'll, we'll get to the other services that announced, as you said, this year, 2015, uh, GDC is kind of when this whole massive change to tools, to the concept of, well, licensing in the sense of, does it cost a bunch of money to access these tools? It seems to be benefiting the independent developer or the, the education type of scenario. Like I'm a, I'm a, I want to be a game developer, but I can't access these tools. How do Mm -hmm. I do it? So now that things are going free, that's easier for someone like that. But 
Unreal was, as you absolutely pointed out, the kind of preeminent game engine of the last generation. Uh, it, it was powering everything that was essentially a big-budget AAA first-person or third-person title. Yeah. So where they're at now, I don't know, because I see so many other alternatives, be it Unity or even uh, Source Engine 2 that Valve announced. Yeah. There's a lot of competition, right? Yeah, I think it's because of it's out of necessity, really. I mean, if you can't sell to these big companies, where is the next audience? Yeah. And uh, we were talking about this before we started recording, but um, that's probably the biggest change from where we were 10 years ago as people entering college and now people who are like, you know, we're, I'm a hobbyist game developer. Aaron's done a little bit of dabbling. Uh, and uh, it's um, there's this whole new opportunity available for all kinds of people to get to start learning how to make games. And I think that uh, Epic is looking at the market, looking at how Unity came out of effectively nowhere, kind of did its thing quietly for a long time, and then the last couple of years just drew in this massive crowd of new developers, people who had probably never even thought about making games until they saw Unity. How did, they draw, how did Unity draw those people in, though, compared to an Unreal? A uh, couple ways, I think. Uh, one is that you don't need to know C++. Okay. It's all built on, uh, it all runs C-sharp, which it then compiles to C++. So less of a programming necessity, you can just start building things in a way? Yeah, it's it's a lot of uh, what you see is what you get in the editor. A WYSIWYG. Yeah, it's a it's a WYSIWYG. <laughs> yeah. Which sounds like a, like a fantasy, like, troll creature, but like... It's something from the first edition of Dungeons and Dragons. Yeah, yeah. something that, like, you just imagine the illustration has, like, pizza stains on it and... <laughs> Some scantily clad, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's wearing like a weird like medieval bikini kind of Very thing. Very sexist, yep. So WYSIWYG. Yeah, the WYSIWYG, yeah. 70s. Uh, and uh, yeah, so it's built around with scripting languages. You can even use JavaScript, okay. which is, you know, if you're not, like I'm not a real programmer is what I need to say because I mostly <laughs> script. I, I know JavaScript pretty well. I know C Sharp. I C++ can just screw right off because I don't want to touch it. And you know what? You don't need to anymore to make games. And they'll run fine, and they'll compile fine, and they'll be efficient, and they'll be portable. And that's the other big thing that Unity has going for, is mm-hmm. that you can write to any platform out of the box. That That is the most amazing thing. And to not go on a huge aside, but um, last summer when I did a introductory game development class, I'm in grad school right now, and that was just kind of a fun thing to do. And I've always been curious. And mentioning C++... And that hurdle that it used to be, to me as a, a player of games from childhood through now, game development always seemed like magic to me. It was something completely unreachable. I couldn't understand it because I had no idea how it worked. I just assumed it was too hard to do. But having a tool, uh, especially like Unity, like you're, you're mentioning, it doesn't require this innate, dedicated, hardcore programming background. Right. To just be able to build things is revelatory. It's insane. And not to mention the other tools that aren't just about 3D graphics and the, the, the most amazing looking and mobile portable editions of games. But that's crazy. Like that's That has been a huge, I have to assume, uh, change in the way games are developed because of a tool like Unity and others. Yeah. What, what it's done is basically you don't need a CS degree or just a... Um... A you general, just have to have an idea. Yeah, you don't need to like hate society and hole up in your room to like, work on something. And I'm not saying right. that in, like in a derogatory way. It's just like you really need. It was a big sacrifice to learn this stuff for a lot of people. Yeah, it takes a lot of time, a lot of focus, a lot of consistency, 
and a lot of dealing with just shit that won't compile and you have no idea why and you want to break everything i still Hashtag have compile problems i still have terrible memories of learning visual basic in high school and having to print off my source code and hand that in when my project was done because how does a network work <laughs> and then if it didn't compile when there was uh, yeah the uh, pain <laughs> anyway that shit's all gone <laughs> 20 years ago, I was learning HyperCard because I wanted to make games, which is effectively a slideshow program that Apple bundled in that was grayscale only with the most rudimentary of scripting possible. 10 years ago, I was trying to learn Flash, and then I realized that Flash is terrible. Terrible. Terrible, yeah. terrible, terrible. terrible. amazing things done with Flash, but it's not easy. Yeah. I mean, Super Meat Boy. Yeah. Or Meat Boy, the original. Uh, Binding of Isaac. There have been two good things done with Flash. <laughs> um, and now Unity is ushered in this era where, like, you have people releasing all kinds of cool stuff through it. Like, mm-hmm. I can't think of anything that was super blockbuster, groundbreaking, or anything off the top of my head. But like a recent game that, full disclosure, I helped work on a little bit, Roundabout, was built in Unity by two people, mm-hmm. and uh, that just shipped on Xbox One. It's coming to PS4 and Vita later this year, uh, and it's a cool little game. It's a contained. And so it was possible to have it release. Question: It, it was possible for it to release. Uh, I reviewed it. Um, on PC and now have it port to the other platforms because of Unity, essentially? Or do they have to do some sort of additional work to make that port happen? I mean, there's always going to be more work, and every platform holder has its own set of standards, and consoles are always going to be more restrictive than PC in terms of, you know, when you push these buttons, this certain thing must happen. Mm -hmm. When you push the Xbox Guide button, it can't crash the game, that kind of thing. But I'm sure it wasn't as difficult to, or you didn't have to start entirely from scratch right. like you might have used to. Right. You don't have to rewrite anything. It, you know, it, comp- it knows how to compile for each of these platforms, which yeah. is a huge step up. Uh, certain things will always behave differently. Like, you know, you hear about shader models behaving differently on platforms sometimes, which basically you can have graphical issues crop up that you don't expect. There's like a lot what? of what? I don't know. I mean, like, you may not see a shadow where you think it should be. Uh, trees may pop in in strange ways in games if you're not using Academy Award-winning middleware technology speed tree. You, it's just, you know, the sky's the limit. You really gotta yeah. test this stuff. Uh, and that's that's always gonna be true, but the difference here is that you build it once in one engine, and then you can, like, just write the rules for all the platforms from there. And, like, mm-hmm. it just... Yes, you have to work on everything, obviously. They weren't gonna, that step will never be gone fully, but... It's just cool that you build a game once, and it's not like this... Remember back in the 16-bit era when you'd get, like... You'd be like, okay, let's let's pretend that we had both the Sega Genesis and the Super Nintendo in our possession. Sure, I'm there. Okay. Set the scene. You're living the dream. You have right. both of them. Both 16-bit consoles. You're thinking about a 32X, you know, possibly double your bits. <laughs> you you're, have that option. You're getting mad stoked on the thought of a right. 32X and playing, like, Alter Beast on that. All and, your friends come over just because of that. Yeah. Like, Yeah. It's spring break. You have two consoles. <laughs> You're stoked as fuck. Right. It's no. It's it's March of 1994. You want to go rent yeah. Aladdin. Yeah. The game. Okay. At Blockbuster. Yep. Okay. Do you get it on Super Nintendo or on Sega Genesis? Um, I mean, I don't. Is there a right or wrong answer? Well, yeah, but I'm not going to tell you until you answer. Well, I would say I would say Super Nintendo. I would say you're right. Okay. Thank you. It looks and plays way better, and there's none of the sword bullshit sure. that you have in the Genesis version. And I also, because you said it was 1994, I will also be picking up the Power Rangers game on Super Nintendo. Okay, we're going to we're going to double back on that. Okay, all right, yeah. Setting that aside, so we're you should there. be getting King of Monsters too. <laughs> anyway, yeah. Point being, there was no such thing as like right once deploy on both 16-bit consoles back then. Like 
those systems were so different at the hardware level that everything had to be done differently. Everything so you were essentially written. making the game over on a different platform. Yeah. Which, if you chose to develop on the Super Nintendo, you still you basically had to develop it again on the Genesis, essentially. Yeah, or vice versa. I'm not sure if there was like an established build here first, deploy there later. Yeah. Like I know that um, I want to say that in the last generation, the 360 was kind of like you start there. Well, some companies had different perspectives. Sure. You hear about some companies that say PS3 is the harder one to develop on, so do that first, and then optimizing for 360 is not so bad. Or you hear people saying, like, no, get out working on 360 and then just deal with all the weird shit that crops up from using the seven processors or whatever the hell the PS3 had. Yeah. Um, all the cell processors. Yeah. But back in the 16-bit era, and before then, too, you had... That's why you had Sparkster and Rocky Knight Adventures, both games starring the same character that came out around the same time. Uh from konami i think but they were completely different games in a lot of ways they mm-hmm. looked different they had different graphical effects they both were great but uh that's why you saw this weird disparity mortal kombat's a good example of that too or street right. fighter right like those games felt off if you played one before the other i remember the super nintendo version felt yeah entirely different from the genesis version yeah so to tie that back like you're saying is not that long ago realistically especially in the sh- very short history of games and game yeah. development on home consoles it used to be a much more difficult process to actually do multi-platform development or porting or whatever you want to consider it. Mm-hmm. So Unity we've mentioned and how that's enabling creators, but what about what are the other engines doing right now, and especially in light of the GDC announcements, which we haven't gotten to, what, yeah. is, what is happening now? What's the next step? What's the next stage in game development? Who is going to benefit from it? The who's, tools. Who's going to benefit from going to the next level? <laughs> yeah. All of us. Excellent. It's going to be great. So what's <laughs> happening is every major... As these big companies are locking down their own proprietary tech, there's kind of this gold rush happening where people at Unity and Unreal and to an extent uh, Crytek uh, and probably other companies like Game Maker probably thinks it's trying to compete too and like on some level it always will but it's more of a niche product. Um, they're all like, wait... People can make games now. Like all this hard work we put in is finally paying off, and these amazing uh, graphical user interfaces for like how our engines can be built with. That's like starting to come together, and mm-hmm. it's accessible. And you don't need to have like a CS degree, and you don't have to like hate your life to make games. We need to get all those people giving us money in some way, or using our tech at least. And what that's created is like I think that the these companies were undercompensating for the demand. And mm-hmm. uh, recently, what was announced at GDC were things like. Valve finally unveiled Source 2, the successor to the Source engine, which debuted with Half-Life 2 over a decade ago. And they said the development tools and all that stuff for Source 2 are going to be free. Mm-hmm. That's never really... I think that's different from Source, where they actually licensed it out to a few games. I want to say, like, Dark Messiah of Might and Magic used that. Yeah, and I don't think... I mean, what was the most free version they had after a while was the Source Filmmaker, and then eventually the Source SDK was available, but it took a while, right? Well, SDK was always available, but I don't think you could license it. You could actually it publish. You have without to, like, a, get their you have, Yeah, license. you have to have a direct relationship okay. with Valve. Um, I think the most recent game built with Source that was big was Titanfall. Yeah, right. Which is a very heavily modified version of Source. Yeah, it, yeah, it was super modified. In the same way that Call of Duty is, like, I think still modified id tech. Yeah, <laughs> Unreal. It was Unreal too. At least on the last generation, I remember. Really? Yeah. I thought it was id tech. No, it was, I think at least Call of Duty 4 was Unreal 2 that was heavily modified. We'll look that up at the break and find out. Yeah. (laughs) So, splitting hairs aside. Yeah, so what we have is like, Source Engine 2, free to develop on, free to publish, all that stuff. Mm -hmm. Unreal Engine 4, 
was $20 a month roughly to license. But Still not crazy expensive for a budding game developer or independent. No. It's a lot cheaper than the upfront cost or monthly cost they used to have before. Mm-hmm. And that's just across the board. If you make, and then basically after that, it's like a certain royalty cut, like 5% on top okay. of some amount of money goes to Epic forever. Sure. Um, Unity had for a long time just been this very staunch, like we they always had this free version that was limited in its functionality, but mostly it all there. Like you could build and ship games and sell them, but you had to pay for Unity Pro uh, to get all the good features, like advanced lighting, shading techniques, okay. uh, integration with source control, which is a big deal if you're trying to make a game with another person. If you don't have version control with like uh, Git, for example, you're screwed. Uh, Dropbox does not work. Take it from me. Don't use Dropbox to collaborate on Unity. So basically, you would have to get the pro version at a certain point if you were serious about this. If you're serious about, product. I would say if you want to sell a game, you need pro. Right. Uh, so and, there's a cost. Yeah, and then it tech is unreachable. I guess mostly because it's proprietary now. Yeah. But uh, so Unity still has a $1,500 pro version. They never took a royalty cut though, and that that does not change. They still don't. Okay. Their new version, Unity Five, the free version is feature complete. Like, all that advanced lighting, all the cool stuff they built out, all the new UI stuff that was added with recent versions. I won't get into the super That's detailed. what they announced at GDC, right? Yeah, that's all going to be in the free version. Uh, you get access to, like, supplementary features. Like, they have this cool, like, way to get builds of your game done quickly on the cloud so you don't have to spend time compiling on your computer, which is mm-hmm. really cool. That's all premium, all that kind of stuff. But, like, it's a huge step up for free developers. And it's a big step forward in terms of, like, saying, no, we're going to compete with Unreal. We're going to really try and own this market still. Uh, so a lot of big news like that where suddenly if you want to make a game and even like two years ago you were off put by like the cost of things and the prohibitive knowledge required like holy shit stop what you're doing and st- <laughs> go start learning how to make games because like if you have the time and the will to do it it is so much better to start now than any other time and uh, I think that's where the money I think that that is where these companies need to be there's no other market that they can get with so many people who are willing to give them a little bit of money then like that's that's the way forward for them. So who is it possible for the individual now to make that game in any engine of their of the ones we talked about at least? So um, Unreal Four, Unity Five. Um, does has CryEngine ever came up about any sort of licensing? I know at GDC they didn't mention anything, but are they free at all? They're like ten dollars a month. You can actually subscribe through Steam, which is cool. Oh, okay. Um, they're pretty cheap. They have a licensing fee of some sort, I think, or like a percentage cut. Sure. Uh, but they're pretty okay. I don't know many people using CryEngine. Yeah. I want to say like DayZ is. But then Source 2. Yeah. So the big ones. No, DayZ is using Arma now, whatever Arma uses. So. Okay. Whatever um, Bohemia yeah. does. What a weird company. <laughs> um, so if I then take me the casual, very, very casual game developer, if you call yourself a, a casual game developer... Um, I made a small flash game in Stencil, which is, Stencil is a free tool, and it's essentially using logic strings to like combine and puzzle pieces actions you know, for a character. So if you want someone to jump, and then when they jump, the the animation changes to like a crouch animation. You make that little sprite, just to explain it. You make that little sprite, and you have the different logic strings attached to each other. But it's very it's like sliding Legos together in a way. As you said, the the like the other tools, they don't require this programming knowledge. You can go in there and do programming if you have that ability, but you don't have to. Right. So me having maybe made a game of that level of complexity, very simple, flash based, am I 
if I want to make a game in Unreal or Unity or Source 2, whatever we know about them, can I do that? Can I sell it? Can I? What's my potential look like now? It's better. Uh, it's a lot better in some ways. Uh, obviously, there's still a learning curve to all this stuff. Like, you can't sure. just expect to open it up, open the help menu, and get a full walkthrough <laughs> from, like, here's how to draw a cube. Here's Clippy. To like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it looks like you're trying to make a game. Yeah. It's like, no, I want the bouncy ball back. Get the hell out of your Clippy. <laughs> I have seen... I have seen um, uh, Unreal hasn't a good job of doing these YouTube training videos. Mm -hmm. I have a uh, friend that is really in the game development and subscribed to Unreal when it, when it was the twenty dollars a month, and he linked me all of these amazing tutorial videos. And I'm sure that there is this whole I, I'm assuming a subculture of either not affiliated with the the companies that are making these tutorials or the videos if the companies themselves aren't putting that information out there, right? Because it seems like there's this. There's always been a large community of people interested in making games, yeah. but now it's so easy for them to, hey, here, here I am using Unreal 4. Here's how you deal with shaders or something and watch a YouTube video about it. Is that like the best way to get that knowledge now? Yeah, totally. So uh, full disclosure, I spent my last year uh, floundering toward a career in game development, and uh, that meant that I had to spend my first few weeks just like creating a curriculum for myself and learning Unity as fast and as best as possible. Mm -hmm. Uh what worked best for me, and that's different for everybody, was really, um, yeah, Unity has tutorials that you can follow along with that are like written documents with files you download and then work with in a certain way. The best thing I ever did, though, was finding good people on YouTube who are just great at explaining stuff. Mm -hmm. um, and if I actually, I have two recommendations. Um, there's for this, Unity, right? For Unity, yeah. I, Unreal has great stuff, too, I've, I've taken a look at, but I haven't dug nearly as deep into that. Mm -hmm. uh, but if you're looking at Unity, uh, there's this guy who has a, his uh, program is called Brackies, like brackets, but with a Y. Um, I don't know why. Sure. But he does. He's just an excellent, excellent teacher uh, at learning the basics of Unity. He has these great structured video courses. They're all free. Uh, check them out. And then also, um, there's this series called Cooking with Unity that I've seen a little bit of, but I have friends who swear by it. So there's a there's just tons of stuff out there for free that is just so much better than a company. Had really is going to put out typically, especially Unity. Like they have videos, but they're scattershot. Only they're goes not great. So far. Yeah. But that, not to overstate it, but that just amazes me. Of yeah. And you know, we're not we're not trying to um, do public relations advertising for these companies. But if you've been an enthusiast of games, call yourself a gamer, whatever you call yourself. If you love games are interested in how they work or how they're made. And I've seen this repeated, uh, you know, anecdotally on websites from developers on Twitter or whatever, but the best way to know how games work is to try to make your own game. Yeah. Like that, that knowledge and that experience from even just doing it once in my case has given me such a broader perspective on what games are and, you know, whether or not that knowledge for me and my normal life, if I don't ever really do anything with game development if that matters, I don't know. But yeah. as somebody who cares and follows the industry, it totally informs how I approach even news stories or releases or previews or reviews, whatever it is. So just to have this freedom and this democratization of game development is so empowering. That's that's insane. And yeah. reading the books that have come out even before these major 3D, like, super powerful tools like Unity or Unreal were made free recently. Reading books from people like Anna Anthropy and just, here, just make games. 
There are free yeah. tools out there. Do it. And now seeing the biggest tools being free, that's that's crazy. Yeah, totally. By the way, that book is uh, Rise of the Video Game Zinesters, and it's uh, worth checking out. Great book. Uh, yeah, we are... It's a very different time. And like I cannot say this enough. If you're listening to this, if you're curious how games work, you, there's no better way to understand a medium, I think, than to take a stab at learning how it's done, how it's built. Yeah. Like I would I would have felt so much more uncomfortable writing about music if I hadn't been playing music my whole life, for example. And it maybe it sounds dated too, but think about even the handycam revolution or having something that is a video uh, camcorder yeah. just 20 years ago and how independent film was making actual legitimate strides into the film industry of be it clerks or these other independent films from the 90s just you're absolutely right having the experience of making your own medium even if it sucks even if it's just amateur it's terrible it doesn't matter if you care about that form of creative expression you owe it to yourself to actually get involved in some way and what is it to you especially now if these tools for game development are free they're free you download something (laughs) You, you yeah. tool around a little bit. Maybe you follow a tutorial and make some bouncing ball that has a really great lighting source and whatever. It doesn't mean anything. You're not going to make a million dollars off of it, but that's you should. You yeah. absolutely should. What else are you doing with your time? Let's be honest. It's just it's such an amazing time to be someone who wants to learn something. Like I don't want to go too far off on a tangent here, yeah. but like I finished my first Coursera class a few months ago, and it was in uh, creative programming. So mm-hmm. I had never used Java, but it was in Java, this variant called processing. And it was like. I took this class. It was my free time. It felt kind of weird to be in class again, but like I learned a lot. I got to learn a new programming language pretty quickly. And like, it's just, it was free and all like just the ability to learn stuff. Free, practical, applicable knowledge. Yeah. We, we are already living in an era where you can learn anything you want for free. And right. All it takes is your time. So obviously you should squander that, avoid anything <laughs> of actual merit and start making games because right. God damn it, we need more games. But keep listening to our podcast while you're making the games. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You need to keep listening to us because right. otherwise we, we won't be talking about We'll be doing games. a Unity um, education course over the next few episodes. Yeah, I'll be talking about lurping, <laughs> which is different from larping, but equally awkward. Yeah, you didn't mishear him. Yeah. Uh, so that's a, that's a good take on game engines. I just want to mm-hmm. talk about one other piece of tech and then we'll maybe take a break here. Okay. Um, out of GDC, probably the bigger news to some people, especially to consumers, uh, is this whole explosion of VR tech, virtual reality, where, like I mentioned uh, earlier, we had this kind of slow burn of Oculus with its development kit getting out in the wild. People starting to make stuff with it. You hear all this buzz from like games press and established developers who are like, wow, this is the real deal. Like This technology works. And it's one of those things where it's like, well, that's easy to say. You used it. It sounds sure. like a lot of snake oil and hogwash to me. <laughs> Uh, your your average video game enthusiast. Uh, Aaron and I have both used Oculus. Used DK1. I've used DK2, mm-hmm. the newer one. Uh, I can't speak for you, but I will say that I have had like I've had more just eye opening like moments where my just my brain felt like it was expanding, <laughs> like in the same way that I would, I would assume like you know hallucinogens are so desired for right where it's just like whoa like i'll give you an example there's this platformer game that they've been showing with the uh, oculus recently i don't know what it's called it's like a mascot platformer in the style of, like crash bandicoot or mario or actually the closest comparison is croc legend of the gabos which <laughs> uh if you never played that you almost wow. missed out yeah. on a good game look that up if you have no idea i 100 percent it at one point great i'm not proud good for you yeah no no 
Anyway, mascot platformer, cutesy, colorful. And it's just a third-person platformer. You collect these things, you kind of dodge enemies, it's kind of lighthearted, it's got these floaty but fun controls, great, fun little music. And you got this headset on, you're in this VR world. And you'll like pass by beautiful scenery, like, oh, we're going to go through this tunnel, there's this waterfall in the distance. And you realize at some point you can move your head around. And so it's like, there's a waterfall over there, I want to look at that thing up close. And like, you just lean forward and you're like, holy shit, I can't see the character anymore. He's probably just standing there, going to get hit by something. But like, I'm going to look under this platform I'm standing on. And like, I'm going to, I can't, this is terrible radio. I'm going to move my head down around and look to the side to look underneath this platform. And you can do that. And something in your brain just clicks where it's just like, holy shit. All those hours I spent like awkwardly sitting on the couch, like leaning into turns with my controller while I was like trying to play Gran Turismo or something like Cruising USA or yeah yeah better racing game Cruising USA <laughs> the best racing game yeah oh god it's bad it was good but it's it was just this like it's for a lot of people I think it's just a re- revelatory moment it's this mm-hmm. thing of like whoa this tech works it's just straight up works and people know how to like get those little basic things happening where it's like it's this like kind of amazing feeling it's like going on a cool amusement park right not to like cheapen either of those two things because they're separate interesting sciences of their own but to pick up pick up the point that you were saying uh about even on dk1 when i had used the rift in 2013 now at pax 2013 um there is this brain like you feel your brain somewhat being elasticized pulled apart in this small moment where you click your your mind clicks over into accepting that this is not but it is reality in a way like you know and you are rationalizing that you see the graphics are completely unreal um the best example that i can think of and i can't recall the game it was a student project with uh one of the colleges in washington um we'll we'll find the name and put it here on the the post but uh this game was about racing around essentially in like a pod racer star wars style between different columns and rocky piers from my memory uh but you're in the cockpit and you are using the controller and head tracking is working and you're looking around and there's a blue sky there's ground distinctive ground it's brown it's it's tan you know you know all these shapes for their real world equivalents but that moment you're just trying to convince yourself that it's not real and even though it doesn't look it looks like star fox super nintendo quality of graphics at that tech demo like it's very uh the polygons are very sharp it's it's there's no realism involved but if you let yourself go you you feel you're there in the moment and mm-hmm. it's you can't understate that even on the first development kit, even in the uh, initial stages of a tech demo, essentially, for a student project. Mm-hmm. And that's huge. But what I ask, I guess, is with the new news of the other, which we haven't mentioned yet, the other VR competitors from GDC that came out, yeah. we'll, we'll mention those, but if I am, let's call me Joe Gamer, I'm a terrible human being, probably, but Joe Gamer yeah. has heard about... <laughs> Has heard about I VR. already feel uncomfortable sitting across <laughs> from you, Joe. I'm sorry. Yeah. This is just not going to go well. When's the new Call of Duty come out? First question. Second <laughs> question. Um, VR, I heard about through Oculus Rift, right? Maybe I heard about the Facebook news about Facebook buying Oculus. What was it, a billion-dollar deal? Two. Two billion. So, you know, I know about that. And then all of a sudden, on uh, on my RSS feed, I see 
uh, Sony's Morpheus project, their VR, uh, Valve's HTC partnership for a head tracking set. Yes, the Vive or Viva. Viva, yeah. It's V-I-V-E. Well, yeah, I have no idea how that's pronounced. I don't know. For the longest time, I thought it was the PS Vita, so <laughs> I'm not the right person to ask. Right. And then you have uh, what Samsung's called. Just Gear VR? Gear VR. So Samsung's VR, Gear VR. Am I missing any? Google put out a cardboard thing that you put on your phone, and then that's virtual reality. Oh, and the Microsoft HoloLens. Yeah, the that Minecraft That wasn't a GDC, lens. though, right? No, I don't think so. Okay. so. If it was, it was limited. So I hear about Joe Gamer, me. Yep. Cool guy. How's Call of Duty going? It's, it's going great. You Prestige? I have Prestige several times. Do you have that camo on your gun? Yeah, it's a uh, pink have... camo, because nice. I like I like shooting people to make them mad that the gun's pink, because mm-hmm. I care about that. Um, How high are you right now? extremely <laughs> several bong rips okay um that's the the minimum it's joe gamer yeah so good old joe gamer good old joe gamer so i hear about all these other vr tracking systems headset crap etc what i mean maybe this is not a question that's fair to ask of you or me oh they're all Aaron, questions but what what's the difference like where where's the threshold now What's happening now? If if Oculus wasn't enough, and from what I'm seeing as me, Aaron, uh, seeing headlines about Sony is so much better than Oculus, uh, HTC and Valve's headsets going to change everything. Of course, the enthusiasm is uh, by the press is stratospheric. But what's happening now with VR? Is it legitimized because other players are entering in? Is Oculus going to catch up? They seem to have been quiet since the GDC thing. I mean, at least I haven't heard anything. So is VR now being done better by these other companies? And is it going to actually become a realistic consumer device? Are people actually going to now buy into VR because everybody else is doing it? That is the billion dollar question. <laughs> that's So that's what they're banking on, you think? This is... Um, I think what we're seeing is a critical mass where... Investors at these, in the form of these big companies and effectively their shareholders, uh, they see a pretty sure bet forming. Where mm-hmm. you know a year ago we had like Sony had just started to make hints and inroads at this Morpheus thing at the last GDC, mm-hmm. and this was on the heels of like Oculus shipping DK2 and being like, "No, guys, we're serious. This is really cool and it works." Um, now you have these major players that you wouldn't really expect to be making what we call gaming tech. And I'll get to your question, Joe, sure. in a moment about whether or not you'll be able to like <laughs> cool put blunts on your on your guns in like 3D. Can I get a headset that has marijuana leaves on it? That that you can already do that. Great. Okay. Continue. Yeah, you're welcome. So now you have these companies, not like you know, yes, Sony and Microsoft have their own like kind of virtual or augmented reality tech, but you have like HTC partnering, yeah, mobile tech. developer, right? Yeah, Samsung, mm-hmm. Facebook. Like let's not let's call a spade a spade. Facebook is making Oculus tech. You wouldn't maybe five years ago that would have sounded insane, right? Yeah, the fact like you think of Facebook games five years ago and you just mafia <laughs> You think of Joe Gamers like yeah, you mom know, when, playing or like when he's like not at Call of Duty when he's like on the going to work or something or like just you know staring in the mirror and like flexing. He's just playing like Farmville. Uh, I did my words with friends and I I'm really bad at it because I'm Joe Gamer. So I'm I'm sorry, Joe. Thank you. You could probably still get some sweet 360 no-scope action, though. <laughs> right. So, yeah, um, that's the big question, though. Is like, is this tech going to be something that, you know, it's all coming to market this year or starting to. Valve is planning to ship its HTC stuff with the Vive, the Viva Pinata of 
VR tech, which actually I sold. Give me that. Yeah. But yeah. <laughs> um, with like the weird anchor points that actually track your position in a room and all this cool stuff. So yeah. you can see where you're digging up pinatas. It has cameras on the front, I don't right? Know if, yeah. The Valve version. Oh, uh, probably. That, if, yeah, yeah. If you haven't got... seen a picture of it, it kind of looks like um, it looks like an anime character's visor because it has all these weird uh, recessed kind of divots in the front of it. Yeah, and those are cameras, right, for to track the I, the room motion. They I must be. It looks like Gray Fox's visor. Yeah, <laughs> it's like the hurt me more of VR. Yep. Uh, or like getting the fucking robot Shinji. <laughs> um, and then you have yeah, so like basically all these companies are making visors and making this like. VR tech and it's coming to market this year. Oculus, we don't know when. Morpheus is probably next year or mm. like first half is what they're saying. Uh, Samsung Gear VR is out, but why? Don't don't touch that yet. Um, so I guess the question is like, what are they trying to do? Are they trying to put one of these in the household of everyone who owns a PS4? In the case of Morpheus and Sony, mm. are they trying to get it in every Steam user's house, or is it something different? And I think it's something different. I think that. All these companies see gaming and really interactive entertainment as a gateway for this technology, as a way to make it palatable and understandable and approachable to people. It has the most direct corollary in a mm-hmm. way. Like, if I'm playing a shooter game, wouldn't it be awesome if that shooter game I was playing in VR? Yeah. It's like, when you think of virtual reality, what do you think of first? One, two, three. Lawnmower Man. Lawnmower Man. Right. And that's like, you know, that's that's people's perception of VR. Yeah. Probably. Or the really... That's, that's my perception. Or the that's, very bad 90s strip mall, not strip mall, but uh, actual mall kiosks that had VR chairs yeah. that were... Awful. It was, a, it was a thing, and like you said way, way back in the beginning, the the uh, misconceptions that we have to get over still, right? Yeah. So I think that there, all these companies see gaming as a step, stepping stone to something bigger, which is, um, why did Facebook buy this tech? Why does HTC care? Why does Sony care? It's it's not just because of games. It's because they see potential in this technology as like Facebook saw it as like an empathy tool. That's what they described it as. Mm-hmm. Which when you think about it, like you know, there's all this derision of like, oh, Facebook wants to like make it so your friends list is all like right in your face and you can never escape it. And like, yeah, maybe on some level, deep down, Mark Zuckerberg is thinking about that. But like, it's like when you think about the ability to interact in a like imagined space with people mm. in a genuine way because like VR is so like there's a, such a fidelity that's possible with it now mm. and with motion tracking and all this stuff there's such a fidelity of input and output that you can create that like this is like I think really what we're seeing is like potentially the birth of a new medium and that's why Lionsgate and HBO have signed a deal with I want to say it was HTC and like I part of this so. Valve thing yeah to like make some transmedia VR content not gaming companies yeah it's um I think entertainment companies in general are going to be where we see the most VR stuff happening in the next few years. It's going to be a do or die year for VR, I think, though. To be so. to to build on that though, is that setting it up for for the skeptics' point of view, the next three D that there's VR and it doesn't really mean shit because it's poorly implemented by these entertainment companies that are just trying to find ways to attach more users and sell more product. Isn't that the that's my fear, and that's why I'm so skeptical just personally about VR as much as I loved using the Oculus in that moment I still think about it as a it's like a delicacy it's a decadent use of technology Hmm. I don't picture myself wanting to exclusively game and not that they're asking that but wanting to game exclusively or watch movies or do whatever I would do via HTC or Samsung's ideas 
in VR. Maybe someday, because this is still the kind of the real true beginning of VR, not what happened in the 90s that was just a flash in the pan, but the true beginning of it, maybe we have, as there are now, 3D-less kind of TVs or screens. That technology progressed, even if it's dying. Yeah. Maybe in five years we have headsetless VR in some way. Who knows? Whatever. Just something that's less cumbersome than I'm putting on an actual visor that I have to now wear. Right. Um, so, sure, I'm sure that will progress regardless of what happens or who's the, the winner. But I just don't see the value still of paying probably a few hundred dollars for this technology. Um, as you said, it's not all about the gamers, but I bet that Sony is hoping to court those 20 million or so uh, consoles that have been sold yeah. for the PS4 because it's a hot new technology to play games. But it's just, it, it seems difficult to rationalize that it's cool technology and it's going to change things. But right now, like if everybody's doing it, it makes me even more skeptical that a lot of them are probably going to get it wrong. So how do I then choose, and it's not that we have an answer to it, but how do I choose which headset to, to go for? Because now everybody's doing it. They're probably all not going to get it right. That's the big fear, I think, that we're seeing a lot of these companies say. Like, I've seen quotes floating around from GDC that, like, there's this perception accurately, I think, in the VR world that, like, they don't really care who launches first. They just yeah. don't want them to screw it up. They don't want anyone poisoning the well the way it got poisoned in the 90s when VR became, like, this joke. Like, you remember that Simpsons Treehouse of Horror episode where Homer gets stuck in the 3D world? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The really terrible uh, polygon versions of the Simpsons. Yeah, like a cone gets stuck in his butt cheek and he throws it <laughs> and it destroys the world. And right. it, uh, that's like, that's that was people's perception of VR. Just pure gimmick. Yeah, pure definition. gimmick, rough, terrible, no, in no way plausible. And wireframes everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. And now we're at a point where, like, just game engines, like, not like scientific like you know nasa hardware like game engines can create this level of fidelity that is just crazy and it'll mm -hmm. run on several hundred dollar hardware yeah. so the pricing is right to create a viable good that people of many walks of life will be interested in but they need to make sure that like it's thought through very carefully that there are no problems of like you know can you iron out motion sickness and to a great extent can you yeah. teach people how to develop experiences for vr because you don't want to just like copy and paste the next Call of Duty into this, it'll drive you crazy if you are, mm -hmm. like, you will, there will be people who have traumatic, you know, reactions to a lot of this stuff. You can't yeah. take your typical survival horror game and just shove it into a headset because you know that, like, in a contained enclosed space, people are going to have much worse reactions. You're going to kill somebody mm -hmm. doing that. Like, yeah. someone, there will be people who probably die from people abusing, like, or just misunderstanding how this tech should work and, like, what people's limits are for exposure to ideas. Um, Here's a an offhand question, but I'm curious. Do you think that this implementation of, as you said, kind of the cost is right, this implementation and this push for VR is happening now that economically we're out of the recession a little bit? Like, Because who would have thought, sure, even a couple of years ago when the next, the current generation of consoles launched, that's a big ask. PlayStation's done well and sold those 20 million consoles I mentioned, mm -hmm. give or take, but... So people are buying, but it seems like this is reminiscent of the 90s when there was more financial uh, security in a way, or there was more prosperity, because this still, my gut, and that's what I keep fighting against, is this seems like, why do I care? Like, it's great technology, but it just seems excessive. Again, that's the thing, is I'm I'm waiting for the the threshold, the watershed moment that proves 
that I need to own one of those, not that. If I owned one, I'd have some cool experiences, but I really wouldn't really change the way I interact with anything. Yeah. But it seems like now, because if the economy is improving as everyone says it is, little bit by bit by bit. And who are we to doubt them? Who are we to doubt? The Fed. <laughs> our our benefactors. Yeah. Ugh. But to then now start thinking of a, of a few months from now, a year and ahead of here's a two, three, four, five hundred dollar, whatever it is, piece of gear. Sure. Why don't you buy into that? Like that seems to me probably going to be the hardest thing in the market. Right? Is you own a computer, you own a PlayStation Four, you've invested this money into it. I'm. I guess I'm just curious, not uh, just asking myself out loud what are they going to do to make that incentive like what are the exclusives that will come to it how do they actually sell these things in the end uh it's gonna sound trite but i think it's one of those seeing is believing kind of things um i think we're at a stage right now where we are very close to getting vr's wii sports where it's like here's this thing you can pick it up and use it instantly there's no like what am i doing moment or like fumbling through an instruction book it just you pick it up you understand it you see your actions mirrored in this game environment and it just clicks. And Good Morning America does a story about it. Yeah, and then, then you're on yeah. Ellen wearing a headset, <laughs> and it's... It's 2006 all over again. Yeah. Uh, I think we're very close to that point. But again, when you look at the Wii, it got a lot of flack because what game was really like Wii Sports after the fact? And don't say Wii Sports Resort because that's just a sequel to Wii Sports. And... <laughs> With Motion Plus. Yeah, which yeah. who gives up? Um, it was tech that was kind of squandered. I think. And it just wasn't developed for in the way that it needed to be. Or maybe, like, it really hits, it hits limit. But I think VR is different because... Sure. It's an all-encompassing experience. Yeah. It's not just a singular differentiator of how you interact mm-hmm. with a control. It's it's not about changing your input, although it's about that, too. Mm-hmm. It's much more about, like... I think it's about feel in a way that nothing really has been up to this point, where it's like... There's something about, and like I first experienced something like this when I played this uh, game called Deep Sea, which I think I talked about um, years ago with you, Aaron, but it's like this game where you put on this gas mask, like an actual gas mask from like oh, yeah. military surplus, noise canceling headphones, and like you're just blindfolded with the world, you can't see anything, it's the eyes on the gas mask are covered in black paint, you, you are, it's complete sensory deprivation, all you have is your hearing. And it's a game where you're being stalked underwater by this, you're on the seafloor, something's coming towards you, and all you can do is send out radar pings to try and figure out where its location is. You hear, like, you know, gurgling water, rushing, like, animals around you, and you're like, when all you can do is hear something, it changes the way your mind works. Mm-hmm. It's like, suddenly, your other senses kick in a different way, and I think VR is like that. And I guess what I'm getting at is, for a lot of people, it's going to be a different, it's different for everybody. Like, sure. How much is it worth it to you to be able to have this, these unique experiences and to like have these like really it's a, it's a feeling engine. It's not like a, um, it's not just visual feedback. It's not just like motion. It's not just force feedback. It's like just sensory immersion. It engages most of your senses in a mm-hmm. way that just using a controller doesn't, it do, or just using a TV doesn't. Reading a no. book doesn't. It's a different kind of perception for people. I think at least that's that's what it's been like for me. Is that it's just like wow, there's this just this can do things that nothing else to this point has been able to do mm-hmm. and like it, it hooks into your brain in a way that nothing else does and i think that for a lot of people a lot of really curious people they're going to see that and be like this is amazing i can't afford this but i totally want to use this whenever like i see one you you they believe in it and they're becoming in a way net promoters to yep. use that term 
for, even if, as you said, they can't afford it, they're going to tell a lot of people about it. Yeah, I mean, I think that's the best thing I can do right now is get good word of mouth and then let the enthusiasts start adopting the hardware to make games and play games. and Which is probably why they're courting the gamers, right? right. Especially the hardcore gamers. They're always the first adopters. Yeah. They'll buy the latest technology at the highest cost because they have to be on the ground floor of something interesting, exciting, technologically. Yeah, I mean, look at it's look at every piece of technology since the 2000s that came to mass market. Look at DVDs. Like, would they have taken off without the PS2? Uh, yeah, PS2? Probably not. Or not as fast. No. It was, I think, the best-selling DVD player of all time. That was that was smart. Same with even the Blu-ray to have. To yeah, with the PS3. Extent. Yeah. That's at the standard now. Everything uses Blu-ray, I think. Yeah. Even the Wii U, somehow. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so yeah, I, I think it's just, that's the business tack they're taking. I think we don't, we haven't seen those games yet that are really going to use this. I, I do want to mention that like, there's everything from like, um, terrifying avant-garde skydiving with like, ah, uh, the weird indie, a, a reckless disregard for gravity, the game where you fall down buildings. That's on Oculus. Don't play it. You'll get sick. Uh, it's a funny game, uh, to this game. that's all about breathing exercises and being aware of like how you're breathing, which is called deep, which, um, uh acquaintance of mine is working on uh which is really cool you should check it out um there's just i think we're just now starting to see people get the confidence to pursue these ideas and to try and put them out there for money and it's it's going to be a couple rough couple years to see what happens but i think that if it doesn't happen now we're going to be at least another decade before there's money and confidence in doing this again i think that you're right that if the economy hadn't started to turn around this probably would have never happened like it's it's the right time in terms of like people are getting a little more confident about their money even the oculus has been extended development i'm not saying that they have held stuff back because of the economy but i'm sure it hasn't there's some marketing plan there that has been even with facebook's money of like you know well maybe we should perhaps lengthen this development process before people can actually yeah be able to buy it but um maybe one other thing i was just curious about curious about um how does vr in what we saw at gdc and all these other announcements and other vr competitors to the the oculus rift how does that correlate to the development tools is vr part of the free tool like could that that first time young old new developer start making vr games or is that our our vr experience is going to be still the uh is it going to be the new way of locking out people from game development like you can go make a mobile game but the vr games are going to take really intense professionalism and knowledge to make is that anything i think that the people on both ends of that spectrum both the engine holders and the tech makers of the vr they both recognize i think that they can't afford to survive without each other. If you don't have indies making these crazy ideas that could be the next, like, Minecraft, or, or like, the Minecraft for VR, or whatever mm-hmm. you want to call it, the next big, like, explosive cultural phenomenon, you need a lot of people making stuff and trying things and taking risks. And there's no better group of people to do that than indies, especially the people who are, like, willing to risk everything to pursue an idea. They have the time. They don't care about the immediate payoff they can devote, like you're saying, to an idea. Yeah. An ideal. Yeah, and like my my kind of jaded reactions, like these big established companies that make like big budget games, like you know, no offense to them, but like Naughty Dog or like mm-hmm. um, Sledgehammer with Call of Duty, they're gonna be great at making amazing, like if they go into VR, amazing, beautiful, immersive roller Derivative. coaster experiences. Yeah, but they're gonna be like roller coasters. Yeah. If you want to see something that like changes the way they like, 
like a gardening simulator that is just like surreal and like immersive, for example, or just like mm-hmm. something that just doesn't sound marketable, but just has this powerful sense of identity and feeling that's got to come from indies. So what I know is that re- previously uh, Oculus stuff had been restricted on Unity to Pro only. I don't mm-hmm. think that's the case anymore. Uh, and I think that with Unreal, it's always been open um, to Unreal developers. So I will do some research on that because I'm curious myself because I'm getting yeah. to the point where I like I would I'm keeping an eye out for like when the DK3 launches and potentially starting to dabble in some development of my own. So, um, but yeah, I think that VR is is dead without financial support from these big companies and without a huge audience of people who really want to make these experiences they couldn't make before. Yeah, and as we're seeing at GDC, it's it's these big companies sure that are adding some legitimacy, but they're taking it completely out from just the tech demo stigma because even as great as the oculus is if it was never going to be on store shelves as a product or on amazon as a product as a lot of these are or are going to be you know how is it actually going to influence the market yeah only the hardcore people will buy it only the small niche of people will buy it we need to have in a way all of this competition and all these uh interested parties with the capital and the clout to make their own versions, even if they fail, to push the idea of VR to the market and normalize it. Yeah. It's necessary in a way. I think you're right. Um, and I think that will probably do it for this segment on technology and gaming, <laughs> colon, 2015, colon, a year for new technology. You're just referencing the Aqua Teen Hunger Force movie, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> Unintentionally, but that happens more often than you think. Uh, you want to take a quick break? Yeah. Cool. And we're back and slightly more hydrated this time. So, uh, yeah, let's uh, transition over to uh, just kind of touching base. Aaron, I'm curious. I heard you've been playing this game. It's got parkour. It's got zombies. It's not like that other one that was out last year called Sunset Overdrive. What is Dying Light and why do you like it? (laughs) Uh, Dying Light is better than Sunset Overdrive from a completely visceral experience uh, in viewpoint because uh, while Sunset Overdrive was funny and had a sense of humor um, was very over the top and had a lot of cussing I guess if you're into that sort of thing Joe um, Gamer's into cussing Joe Gamer is uh, and Joe Gamer actually you know to be serious I don't know what the demographic of what was for uh, Sunset Overdrive but yeah, it was like colorful punk, but like crusty as hell, and like yeah, also gooey. It's like clown energy punk. drink fans. Yeah, clown. There's a punk lot going skater on. stuff, but overall, it kind of worked. Okay, but I guess I think with Dying Light, I am enjoying that experience because I haven't finished it more than other zombie games, including something like uh, Sunset Overdrive, because the the mobility and the gruesomeness of combat so the way that you traverse the environment through the parkour as you as you mentioned uh on the playstation 4 at least is where i'm playing it and you are using the trigger buttons to grab ledges and to climb up so you're not just jump button x automatically grabbing onto a ladder or a ledge and pulling yourself up okay is so, it like Mirror's Edge then, where you had like triggers to do jumps and turns and slides and all that stuff? Yes, there are. Um, it seems a little bit less complicated than Mirror's Edge because there's still this huge combat 
portion where Mirror's Edge didn't really emphasize the combat, or you couldn't really even shoot the gun because you were it was really hard you could. To it was just why would you do that? Yeah, why you just run? Uh, and so Dying Light has that element where running is usually the best way to uh, remove yourself from a situation because if you fight more than one zombie in Dying Light, you're probably going to die. Okay. Um, but the way that you interact with the environment is strangely addicting, and I haven't felt that satisfaction from a parkour type of game since probably the first Assassin's Creed. Really? Uh, where it felt Does unique. it feel like that kind of control over the situation that made Assassin's Creed fun where you're like you're scoping out an environment you're planning your attack yeah. you're you're you will die quickly but if you do it right you're just unstoppable yeah actually it's it's pretty much equivalent to that oh cool at least in the first Assassin's Creed and you know those of us who played all those Assassin's Creed games have because the series has largely stayed the same in how it does the uh, the environment traversal you come to that with a pre-existing knowledge of, oh yeah, I can climb that, or it'll take a running jump to make that gap yeah. between chimneys or something. You you know that over time, but with Dying Light, you're starting fresh, and you really have no idea how the world works, how it takes time, actually, to gauge the amount of, of uh, running start you need to jump from one rooftop to another, and that's actually really cool. Uh, is that like a, a pleasing sort of progression then where it's like oh this is unfamiliar i don't really know how i fit into this world and how i move through it and then over time do you feel like that's a way that you build confidence like is that a satisfying area of development for the player or is it kind of just this thing that you deal with to get to the good parts it's very satisfying and i could see though where it's just a reflex where some players might not really pick up on the importance of how the game presents its traversal that over time and i'm i'm probably maybe 10 hours 10 12 hours into the game mm -hmm. i'm not very far in the story but i've done several core missions and i've spent a lot of time running around the uh the hassan city city of hassan i think it's the state of hassan maybe but it's a fictional middle eastern country okay and you are dropped in as this agent of essentially what would be like the cdc in the Western and U.S. powers to... But you're also into parkour? Yeah, they never explain that. If they do later... <laughs> yeah, if they do later, uh, I don't know. But you are the agent white dude who gets dropped in from like a Halo plane drop. Not drop, not like Halo the game, but like high altitude, low emission. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you're you're literally a savior from the Western world you are yeah you're like floating into Who's the great Arabic with, country do, yeah you fly in like like an angel and then you are there to spread your capitalism and uh, kill lots of things it sounds like including I'm guessing living people in addition to zombies yeah 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 uh, no, hmm. it's only a few hmm. story missions in that you actually start meeting uh, or meeting <laughs> fighting and killing the gangs that are out there that are trying to there there's a lot there so okay. so I mean I'm not trying to be too critical or anything right but, no no, but it's a fair point to make because the story itself, um, and I'll get back to the traversal part because it's it's I think it's probably the best and most satisfying part of the game so far, and sure. maybe for the whole game, who knows? Once I finish Dude, it, good traversal can make a game entirely playable. I I mean, look at Just Cause One. Mechanics are very important. As much as we get away, another aside, sorry, but as much as we get away from what a lot of games used to be of just what's the core mechanic, what's interesting about that, like fucking pac-man is very interesting because of the mechanic of avoiding 
ghosts and avo- and getting fruit and getting the high yeah. score. Like that mechanic is very satisfying. So as much as we get away from that and have these filmic narrative games and adding layers upon layers of complexity, you're absolutely right. Having a game with a strong core uh, traversal mechanic in this case can make up for a lot of the other faults of the game itself. So, um, but yeah, so in the story, the way that the missions play out is you, and I really am blanking on the character's name because it's another generic, just like I'm a U.S. dude, I'm an agent, I'm a white guy, I'm just like, let's I'm just here. say like Brody. <laughs> Brody well, sounds like a good. But name. Far Cry already used that. Oh, that was right, Jason Brody, right? <laughs> um, so you're you're this dude, and you're AJ Brody, AJ Brody, uh, Brody Jr. And you are tasked by the CDC-like organization to find the stars. No, but the documentation and the original notes about the cure, essentially, for this zombie plague, it's kind of convoluted, let's just be honest. But what's what's very interesting about the story is how it's almost a Fallout-like experience when you engage with other pl- uh, non-playable characters. Really? So you are in this... Your base as this guy is... Nobody knows that you're an agent of this this organization. You are just a dude who's there who's a survivor like anybody else. And, and they think you're really cool, right? They do, because you are immediately, because of your parkour skills, wherever you got them, the best runner in the city. And runners are the people that are like, do you watch or read The Walking Dead? I read, like, the first big-ass compendium, the one that weighs, like, 50 pounds. Sure. So, like, Glenn. Yeah. He was the runner. He would, he would get the supply runs. Okay. The runners in the world of Dying Light and Hassan are the lifeblood because they'll go get the supplies. They'll go get... I want to call it Zombrex from uh, <laughs> Dead, Dead Rising. Rising but yeah. it's I don't remember the name, but that's what it is. It's a suppressant... Zombie gone? Zombie disease. Yeah, zombie gone. They, I made that up. There are drops from the CDC-like organization you work for as the character. They do airdrops of this suppressant drug in the city all the time. And, you know, the runners go find that stuff. They go find supplies and food and all that. They're trying to keep you uh, within this tower that exists and has power and all that. Like, they're trying to keep that alive. It's a very small organization. It's very ragtag, but they're they're good people. Reminds me of that hotel in uh, New Vegas. Do you remember that? Yeah, uh, where the guy that shot you in the beginning worked. Yeah, I think so. There's like this Matthew. huge towering <laughs> hotel. And it's, I want to say it was like run by ghouls or something. I don't know. But it had like power and it was... Oh, wait. Tenpenny Tower? Yeah, in, that's in the Fallout one. 3? Yeah. Was that the evil guy ran that you would blow up Newtown? Yeah, that's what it was. I'm, yeah. I'm mixing my games up. But there was the casino like in New Vegas itself where the the people worked yeah 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 but so this tower is kind of your first hub of quests you find people so anyway the fallout point to tie that back into fallout is when you engage with characters the camera zooms in from a first person perspective into that person so like the camera leans into them they have dialogue they have facial expressions it's very intimate in like having a one-on-one conversation with people you don't have branching dialogue or anything, but you, uh, the character, the protagonist, is really voiced very well. Okay. Um, it's very interesting, the conversations you have, and it's very practical and uh, surprisingly emotional. So there's a, a good job of, even if the story and the plot is convoluted, 
you're kind of given a reason to do these side quests by people who say want to garden on top of this tower of survivors but they lost their gardening book and their glasses broke so you need to go parkour your way over to their apartment somewhere in, in zombieville and search through the rubble of their house to actually find the gardening book and the glasses so when you get there and you find those things it's very basic it's not very rewarding but you actually kind of almost give a shit about that guy because of the way the game portrayed the interaction and the conversation so hmm. So the game is basically that. Quests, side quests, uh, the the combat of Dead Island, which Techland developers of Dying Light did Dead Island. Yep, I played and that. The combat, so you would you would recognize the combat a lot, uh, very quickly. There are weapons that, the durability, uh, there's a durability score, so the more you use a weapon, they'll break over it time. It shatters, and yeah. Yep, you can repair weapons, but the... Weapons have a, a finite number of times you can repair them. Okay. You can add attachments onto them to make them more powerful, etc. So pretty pretty basic stuff. Sure. But the traversal, to, to, to highlight the most important part, is you do feel so underpowered and overwhelmed when you start the game. Um, you second-guess your jumps, from a rooftop you can climb up most structures at the beginning very easily but you do have to find if you're on the ground level an awning and then uh steel bars that are over a window like you would see in say a, a, a neighborhood that's very worried about security like those steel wrought iron bars um you have to find those to then climb on that to then climb onto another awning or windowsill to get onto the roof of a building okay um so, so there are you're thinking as you're doing this like yes you're, you're like okay that I can grab, I can't grab those vines, that trellis won't work, and you pretty much can climb everything, but there definitely are, it's logical, I should say. Okay, so it's more Mirror's Edge than Assassin's Creed. Like, you're right. not just holding R and running up a wall. Like you're... Right. Okay. And it can take time, and especially when you start, you're going to spend a lot of the first few hours of the game actually adapting to those systems and learning how to climb, how to run, how to jump. So, okay. so that part and feeling that weakness, because when you would encounter your first zombies, you might have a pipe or just a knife or something like that. It, you're likely to die. You need to run. You need to be on high ground. And just the way that the game rewards that uh, strategy of I'm going to jump from the roof to the top of this car, then I'm going to jump to another top of a car and another top of a car, then I'm going to jump onto a brick wall that's uh, above a sidewalk and then run across a few pipes and climb back up this building. Like, you're planning all of this out ahead of time, like moves in a chess game, to keep yourself from dying. Or like children navigating a living room that's full of hot lava. <laughs> yes. Okay. There's a lot of hot lava in that game. If you play the game that way, you'll actually succeed pretty well. Cool. No, I'm, I'm cut out for it then. <laughs> so that part's satisfying. It's very fun. You get better at it as you go along. So you do feel like this progression mechanic makes sense and it's logical and you actually do get better the more you do it. So you don't feel frustrated by a few hours in of, I couldn't make that jump, I didn't know where to go, because the game kind of eases you into understanding what's safe and what's not, just because you basically know, I can't fight more than two zombies at once, mm -hmm. I need to be on uh, on high ground. So, Do you feel like, I have a couple questions, yeah. so, um, do you feel like the game is going towards a point where um, 
like Far Cry does this, where you, you feel like there's a good challenge at first, maybe, but then by the time you get most of the way through your skill tree development or whatever, you get to a point where you're just this walking tank, where you have all these ways to kill things that just bail you out of all the situations and all the mistakes you make. Like, do you feel like this is going towards that, or do you think that there's, like, more of a um, kind of balanced approach to your progression? Yes and no, because all I've been talking about is daytime. <laughs> so the game has... Two different uh, styles of play. All the things I've mentioned have been in daylight. Dying light. There's there's a theme oh people there. die when right. the light goes out. Yes, because nighttime you are quintessentially fucked at all times. Even if you're running on rooftops and stuff. Or oh yeah, oh. Um, I have only there's one story mission very close to the beginning of the game that forces you to be out at night because the game, of course, wants you to know, like, you're probably going to die during night. It's just a thing. Yeah. Um, it's terrifying. It is probably the most scary encounters I've had in a game since, I don't know, the first Resident Evil and the dogs jumping through the window. Yeah, that was the part where I stopped every time yeah i i refuse now when i'm playing dying light so you can sleep at different um safe houses and you can sleep until night or sleep until morning okay if i'm out doing missions and it's getting to sunset and you can check your watch and then on the playstation 4 controller at least the speaker will beep when it's getting close to like nighttime it's very you're like oh god when you hear that <laughs> yeah. so you book it to the nearest safe house i always sleep until day because i refuse to play at night I don't know if later in the game, and I'm sure it will happen, that side quest or main quest are going to force me to go out at night. But I am literally terrified of going out because there are these these zombies called volatiles, which are basically indestructible, basically unkillable, and they're really strong and they run and they're fast. And there's a skill you can unlock in your skill tree that allows you to look behind yourself while you're running. <laughs> to shine a uv light because they they hate uv okay so you can have a little uv flashlight that runs out of battery the more you use it of course but the the, the act of running from this unkillable zombie who's keeping up with you if not overtaking you turning your shoulder and shining a little uv light to kind of stun it but it keeps coming after you as you're trying to climb up these rooftops and all that is fucking terrifying <laughs> and so it's got true elements of horror then like that yeah sort of you feel completely underpowered and i don't so i don't know to answer your question if later in the game you are strong enough through all the skill trees and i've looked through the, them and they don't seem to be like now at level 20 you get yeah now you have a machine gun right and you can you have like a, a lightsaber of uv ray that you just kill anything so i don't think the game ever goes that bed. far <laughs> you hold your tanning bed out <laughs> trap them in tanning bed um, but I, I can tell, and I've heard this from other, say, critics or, uh, or just people online that you do eventually get stronger. Of course, daytime really isn't a, uh, a challenge after a while because, you know, just stay, uh, stay elevated, uh, run where you can, you get eventually get traps or maneuvers or things to kind of like push zombies. You can do the Dead Rising move where you run up a zombie's uh, chest and, like, vault over them in first person, though, so you can do that oh, to cool. kind of escape. Um, so there are ways to survive, but at nighttime, though, I get the impression that that will always be a challenge, even if you're stronger or you finally get guns, because they're not really plentiful when you start. I imagine it will get easier, but I think that that's the point, is Dying Light 
is meant to educate you on the mechanics and the basics in the daytime. Okay. But as you progress or you get uh, stronger or whatever, you're going to have to play during night, and that's where the real game begins and the real survival strategy happens. So... I feel like there's a there's a saying in here like you know you can live during the daytime but you can only see you really survived if you go out if after the dying you can only survive the night I, this is why i don't work in marketing right i don't know where the hell to go with that so to summarize that i think dying light is the best game techland has done um okay but say something that means something well i know some people who are really into the gunslinger call of juarez gunslinger game oh did they make that yeah Oh yeah, that game was good. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Well, I, I it's went better from... than Dead Island. Okay. Yeah, Dead Island was a cool idea that was saddled with a lot of terrible ideas. And Dead Island Two is being done by Jaeger, which I think is in better hands. Yeah. But those are the Spec Ops the line guys, right? Yes. Cool. So we're gonna have another Heart of Darkness, but with zombies. <laughs> I hope. Which so. actually sounds all right. <laughs> I'm kind of tired of zombies, but uh, especially after Walking Dead season two. But yeah. Let me just say, Walking Dead, it gets better. Oh, I'm talking about the games. Oh, okay, sorry. Well, the TV show, if you ever watch it, it gets better. Oh, yeah, I heard season two is a low point. Um, But, yeah, one quick question, just to wrap this up. Um, What could the game do better? Like, what what is sticking out to you, if there is anything that's like, man, this is a missed opportunity, or I wish games like this didn't do X? I think um, whatever Techland had learned from Dead Island it mechanically in gameplay it applied very well and improved upon in dying light so the game the way it plays i couldn't imagine it being done better aside from the nitpicky things like the way that they present the game and how you play it is adequate if not good if not great okay um depending on your tastes but where it is saddled with a lot of baggage is again in the clicheness, the lack of explanation of a plot, of trying to force this character to matter within this world while playing a double agent, while being an outsider, while being the exceptional superhero type. Um, the way it, it treats emotions is people are sad, people are dying, people's kids need medicine, people need a gun to protect their family. All this stuff that's very just black and white, very expected emotional triggers you need to replace your tennis shoes because you keep doing all this parkour yeah it's tough you can change your outfits in the game too okay that's pretty important yeah um i'm sure there's dlc for that but (laughs) so yeah the the game is weakest and i'm not surprised by that in its plot in its handling of emotional drive in giving players a reason other than the game plays really well or it's fun to play it if you like it to continue playing the game because it's hard to still really care about what's going on and the the struggle that your protagonist has because at a certain point he of course doubts the cdc like organization he has uh second thoughts about the people that he's using to get this mission completed so all the shit that you've ever read or watched or played before it's it's here is this does it play up this trope of like um outsider coming into like a a ravaged country to do something and then realizes wait this agency that sent me isn't actually as ethical as it needs to be and these people are misunderstood and someone they need a champion who has money and cool running shoes to come in and save them 
Um, 75%, I, I don't know if at the end there, like you said, the, the champion to save them. I think it's going there. I'm pretty sure it's going there. But the rest of that, yeah, that's absolutely the nutshell version okay. of the game up to the point I've played. Because that's just, I'm playing Far Cry 4 right now, and it's reminding me of Far <laughs> Cry 3. And they both just have this sort of, I don't know. It's, it's weird playing these games where, um, I mean, I feel like there's this sort of, we're not really talking a lot about this, um, at least in game critics aren't, I don't see a lot of conversation about this, but mm-hmm. this idea of like, I think it's wonderful to make games that are immersive and like take you to these like imagined faraway places and put you in a really unique position to explore them and like have control over the environment to see them and manipulate them and feel powerful in them. But you get this kind of weird, um, I think those, those scenarios are prone to these awful tropes of like, um, or at least these tired tropes of like, you know, the American comes in and saves the day or knows best or like the white savior. Yeah. The white savior. Exactly. Like, you know, just in all these different places. And I mean, yeah, zombies are fantastical, bizarre, weird things that can, you know, go into pretty much any genre, but like, you know, still games where you are, you know, dropped in to save the day. Uh, I don't know. I feel like there's, it's lacking a context for me. It's lacking a, even Far Cry 4, which you mentioned, um, you know, we have other games to talk about, but they tried to give it a better connection than 3, where 3, you literally were the white savior You were the type. asshole parachuting into like a country on screen. Asshole named Brody, literally yeah. named Brody, and we, I will never not bring that up because that is... And I'm sure Ubisoft was very aware of The guy of Brody of who went to this foreign country <laughs> got really high and killed literally a thousand people. Step. Yep. Yeah. Burned a marijuana plantation. So even having a Brody-like person, but in Far Cry 4, Ajay, having him be of the country, like uh, being born there um, and coming back to it, even having that, it still doesn't remove this, like, where's the context? What's the what's the need? Like, sure, they tried to change it with giving his mother had died, you're bringing her ashes yeah, back. Yeah, they, they, they gave context for the character to exist yeah. in that world. Um, which I, I agree is better than not. <laughs> yeah. But in a way, Jason Brody is a more authentic character for the target audience of these games because you really have this Western developer making a game for Western audiences and taking them to these countries that like more likely than not are not going to be places where these games sell a lot because there just aren't yeah. people with the hardware to play them. And um, it's just... It's... In a way, yeah, I, I just feel like that's... I don't think we're talking a lot about like what it, what what kind of like responsibility or just like is there an ethical issue there of like making games for these audiences that put them in these like yeah maybe you're playing as Ajay Gale but like right. you're still I'm still this white dude living in America playing a game where I'm tearing up the Himalayas and like skinning tigers because I can like it, it's almost yeah it's weird it's it, weird this could be a very big jump to make but it's not like you're really challenging your perception of of what it would be like to be in that situation yeah you can you can for that western gamer for that person it's easy to think oh i would do this in some crazy world where i was like the most powerful person in this foreign country i go shoot tigers and skin them and, and just kill everything like that's just an extension of the power fantasies that are in every first-person shooter or sure. or you're the invincible hero type. That's been done. And I think that that's 
the big problem, as you're pointing out, is power fantasies don't have to have a negative connotation in a game. You do have to be, in most cases, unless you do a game like Gone Home or Firewatch that's coming out, where it's more of just a narrative way to explore the world, but... Mm -hmm just being the most powerful or having power within a digital world doesn't have to be a negative connotation. The power fantasy means you are the specific trope of a, a dude, a westerner, a whoever, a murderer, a killer that only interacts with the world in the way that he knows how, and that's by destruction. There, that doesn't have to be the answer. And But the, like you're saying, that, that, that could be just the easiest way of doing it. And it's not that that's even a bad story. I mean, like, you know, look at like the Heart of Darkness archetype. Yeah. Like, if there was a game that really delivered on, you know, the the horror that comes, no pun intended there. The closest was Spec Ops. Spec Ops, yeah, which is almost note for note a retelling of Heart of Darkness. But mm. games that really, you know, I, th I think it would be very bold and impressive to see a game like Far Cry actually have the third act that Far Cry 3 was supposed to have. It seemed like it was building towards where you have this moment of like, oh my god, I'm only causing horror and destruction here. I should really, like, yeah. get the hell out of here or, like, atone for my sins. And, like... I'm not saying every game needs to do that. I'm not saying that games need to like have a, a you know agenda to sure. you know change the way we think about things. But why the hell like you know why not try and yeah, go there? It's not everybody's responsibility, but I think we both agree that it would be nice to see some challenge to that stereotype yeah. of. And in the meantime, you know, I'm happy to keep enjoying these games. I think Far Cry Four is a lot of fun. I Absolutely. just think it's important to have these conversations too. And like it sounds like Dying Light is, you know, if that's its biggest weak point, like at least it's not. At least it's not the combat, or like at least it's not the repetitive, terrible mission design of Dead Island. Like, right? You know. Last thing I'll say about it is, yeah. I, I the way it's been presented and the polish it has compared to its previous games, the company's previous games, it does make me excited for whatever they do next. If cool. they do a sequel to Dying Light, fine. If they do something completely different, it I think it's finally put them into that category of as I'm sure they want to be, a AAA-type developer and not just playing at AAA. Yeah. That they are of a quality to deliver a game that plays very well, a story that is serviceable enough. I mean, that's a pretty big leap for them. Yeah. Well, good. I mean, we need more... It's a scary time to be a AAA developer. Mm -hmm. Like, it's very do-or-die, make-or-break. And, like, it's, it's always reassuring when you see companies like them you know, making better and better stuff yeah. and making good use of this hardware that's in so many people's homes, but kind of dry for content right now. Yep. So it's like that and Just Cause 3 give me a lot of hope. <laughs> yeah. Um, cool. Well, I'm glad to hear you're liking it. Um, I, uh, I, will, I will keep an eye on it. Now I have a question. Okay. What are you liking right now? What are you playing? <sighs> well, those are two different things. Um... <laughs> I'm playing... I know what it is. Assassin's I mean, Creed Unity. Okay. Um, you want to talk about that? To, to tell you that story, I have to tell you another story, which is why I bought an Xbox One. Gotcha. I bought an Xbox One because on the same day, actually, that Harmonix announced Rock Band 4. Mm -hmm. And specifically, they announced that Rock Band 4 will make use of almost all of your existing song downloads from the previous three Rock Band games. Now, why is that important to you? I have downloaded... I've been known in the past to download and play rock band songs. I've been known to own expensive drum kits and pro guitars and keyboards and everything under the sun. Mm -hmm. I may own a mic stand that didn't come with rock band, but I bought a mic stand from a music store to be able to stand the microphone up. 
<laughs> I may or may not have played guitar and vocal simultaneously on a few songs to the point where I could do both on Expert and Nail It because I guess that was important to me at the time. So you were a casual rock band user. I may have 50 songs that Dave Grohl is in some way involved with playable. <laughs> I may have spent $100 on Dave Grohl is what I'm saying. I don't own a Foo Fighters album anywhere else, but I own the color. You bought machine. several through the DLC, yeah. And Nirvana. And point being... I have I could not afford to not get an Xbox One because of the DLC compatibility. Because I know I'm going to love Rock Band 4. I've always liked Harmonix and stuff. I think Rock Band is just an essential game in my gaming experience. Mm-hmm. And if for someone who owns... I don't want to say, but maybe like 900 songs? Uh, be, proud, be proud, man. 920 songs? Yeah. I couldn't afford to replace that in any way. Like Even if I bought like my 100 favorite songs again for PS4, like... No, like I have all this hardware that might be compatible. I've got all these songs, and so right for for the context for crazy people like me who made terrible judgment calls. <laughs> but you spaced out those purchases over years. Oh so. yeah, this yeah. is this is a steady trickle from 2007 right. to 2014, really. So I mean, yeah, because then you shouldn't feel bad. This isn't consoling you, but you shouldn't feel bad because imagine how much we've just spent collectively on video games over years. You know, like, oh, you yeah. space that out. But I mean, I can I've played thousands of hours of Rock Band, and a and lot of that has been with people. Oh, how much entertainment? It's my game of the last generation. Like, right. If I had to pick one, it's just that was. I've had more fun with that game than just about anything I've ever played in my life. Right. So, so to give to give context to why you're saying the Xbox One was your quintessential purchase is. When Harmonix had announced Rock Band 4, they were saying, what, about their hope is 95% of the DLC libraries from the last yeah, generation that was the minimum. will be right, ported, ported over somehow, however that works, yeah. to the next game. Right, from so Xbox that, to Xbox or PS3 to PS4. Right. So if you bought the PlayStation 4 version, you would be SOL because, yep. oh, all that Xbox 360 DLC is gone. Yeah, I mean, like, I'm sure there'll be a disc version with, like, a fucking Paramore song and then a True Fighter song and, like, I mean... It's been a while. I'm guessing Gautier, probably. You know, it's just old enough to be licensable, but Some new Gaga, enough to not... maybe? Yeah, well, I have plenty of Lady Gaga already. Okay. They do. Which is, again, Xbox One purchase validated. <laughs> uh, fun, We Are Young, featuring oh. Janelle Monet. I have that. Is that fun to play? No. I'm not trying to make a pun. If you have a keyboard, it's all right. About fun. But... Unfortunately, the keyboard won't be in Rock Band 4. Yeah. But programs are, so, you know, get your symbols out and <laughs> have fun. So... Anyway, I, yes. I I saw a deal where they had the Assassin's Creed three or Xbox One bundle, um, plus a free extra controller for the standard three forty nine. And Black Flag. Yeah, and Black Flag. Yeah. So two games, two controllers, console, uh, three forty nine shipped. I was mm-hmm. like, all right, I'm not going to see a better deal before Black Friday. It's a good deal. Bought it. Rock Band will be out this year, most likely. If it's not, I'm sure I'll eat crow in some way, but either way... You're set up for when it launches. I'm, I'm ready. And yeah. there's enough exclusives out to the point where, like, I still want to play Dead Rising 3. I still want to check out Sunset Overdrive. Uh, that new game from the people who made Limbo looks really cool. Stuff like that. Right. And then Oni, or Ori in the Blind for- Forest. <gasps> Are they remaking Oni? Sorry, no. <laughs> I misspoke. <laughs> Good. The... <laughs> you want to talk about terrible games. Yeah, Bungie is getting rid of Destiny. They're going back to Oni kind of an improvement yeah anyway yeah so now i have this thing i have these assassin's creed games so i've been playing a little bit of black flag which i played on ps3 and a little bit of unity Mm -hmm. i've actually been going back and forth between them um in like the same play session like i'll play a little bit of one and the other what's that like what is what is the difference when you switch between them so frequently honestly it makes unity look really good really 
Uh, I'm only about an hour and a half into each of them, but I finished Black Flag on PS3. I didn't like it, and I don't know if this is just me being weird, but um, I played all the previous Assassin's Creed games, 1, 2, Brotherhood, um, the last Ezio one. Revelations? Yeah, all four uh-huh. of those on Xbox, and then 3 came out, I got that on PS3 for some reason. It just didn't feel right. I know it's the worst game in the series by most people's estimation, but I just hated playing it on PlayStation, and I thought 4 looked kind of crappy on PS3, and... Playing with new, the updated graphics is nice. Um, it feels great on that controller. I don't know what it is about the running, but uh, yeah. Unity was what surprised me because that's a game that shipped broken as hell. Required this companion app to open chests in the game, which is just like the most fundamentally stupid thing ever. Yeah. And now that I'm playing it, they've p- patched a lot of those problems out. They patched out the need for the companion app. Yeah, you can open every chest without any sort of extra extraneous mm-hmm. thing. All you need is like the time required to open seventeen thousand chests. There is an achievement for opening every chest, and that will probably be the one I never do. Yeah, uh, I'm not touching that. I, I, the only one I completed 100% was two, and even that was a stretch for me. Right. So, um, but it's a gorgeous game. I mean, it's yeah. it's in terms of why I like Assassin's Creed, like why I like the series, why I think it matters, is it, it nails the history in a way that I think is really satisfying. Not to say it gets it right. <laughs> That's a far fucking cry from what they actually do. But the documentation, yeah. Yeah. Far Cry. Well done. Yeah. Thank mm. you. Ubisoft. Buy stock. <laughs> uh, they, but when it comes to realizing these cities, and like they've they come they come so close with like uh, like Versailles, for example, where you start mm-hmm. out, um, just in the way that the buildings are modeled, the, the beautiful textures and architecture, like they're very. It's just like, isn't there a kind of a velvety feel to that game? The cloth on yeah. the characters. Oh my god! Arno, the way that Arno's cloth shading... animation is just astoundingly cool. right like it's it's more visual trickery smoke and mirrors but it's beautiful like that's what i really wanted to see in an assassin's creed game and like i don't know how the gameplay is going to pan out mm-hmm. there's still the stupid follow missions where you have to stay a certain distance from people and the ai still wigs out it's still but, assassin's creed yeah but in terms of like showing what their new tech looks like and what they could do with the future of the series the first time i went and stood in that like big crowd area where you see the king speaking yeah and you're just like Oh my god, there are thousands of character models all milling about, all walking, talking on this one screen. And it's yeah. just like, okay, this tech is the real deal. Like, this is a step forward in a way that Black Flag wasn't. Because yeah. it was really that game that bridged the gap between consoles. This is the first one that was built for the new hardware. And yeah. from a technical perspective, from someone who really enjoys the part of the series where you explore these painstakingly realized historical places and they're like well documented. I read all the codex entries in these games. Me too. Mm-hmm. Because that's the part I'm in. I'm in it for. It's why I love Valiant Hearts for the same reason of right. like, it's not it's as an appreciation real. for history. Yeah, I love games that really try to teach you something in a way that like is conducive to the experience. And like with Assassin's yeah. Creed, I find it enriches my exploration because I'm like, oh, this is almost like tourism. I mean, I'm stabbing a lot of people in the throat, <laughs> and I'm like some dashing rogue character who probably is just completely fabricated. But right, but. Seeing these places brought to life by these amazingly talented artists to me is just so invaluable. So I'm glad I waited to buy it until it wasn't broken as hell. But it's a cool, it's a cool environment they built, and it's it's a pleasure to play it. Like I love the traversal, I love the feel of it. Yeah, yeah. Unity. I never thought I'd say that. <laughs> having having been the person that played it at launch. Yeah. Since I had acquired my Xbox One just about before it launched. Um, yeah, you have missed the large issues putting it lightly with the game and you're i i agree and i think it's gotten so much flack because of the bugs and it's probably because of that engine that you're talking about that 
so much of the game went haywire. Yeah. I mean, trying to make uh, what they did is a whole new engine for the new generation. Um, obviously, they didn't iron everything out before launch. And it does make me excited, even after finishing the game. Um, excited for what's apparently Assassin's Creed Victory, the one yeah. set in Victorian London, um, which I'm sure will be out this year. But yeah, that technology, the way that smoke and mist and just the way that fog diffuses and that that velvety cloth texture that i mentioned yeah and the the crowd dynamics as you said even if you look closely and you can see copies of characters the density of that on a console is not to be you know undersold it's mm -hmm. it's impressive and it does look different than black flag it really does um i know a lot of people love black flag because of the breadth of content the ship maneuvering and all that stuff but right. for me it just felt like too much of not enough like too many too much repetitive ship combat which is fine like it was it was the high point of that game but that's not really saying a whole lot given that the combat felt so stale by that point yeah it it used the i did love the naval part of black flag but it used that as a way to sort of cover for the staleness of the regular core game like okay yeah, we've got the like ship crunch, here kind of yeah yeah so I'm excited to see how the game goes. I don't have my expectations too high, but I think that's helping in this case. And uh, yeah, I will keep my breath held for more Rock Band announcements, you know, <laughs> hopefully. And um, yeah, I'm just curious though, like as someone who played a lot of Rock Band, uh, but didn't really like the hardware of the first one around, which I don't blame you for. My guitar right. broke like six times. Um, <laughs> even the good ones break. Yeah, I had a replacement, yeah. Yeah. Um, are you looking forward to Rock Band 4 at all? Do you feel like... Um, do you see yourself being in a place in your life where it still would be fun to have that around? Yes. Well, okay. So I say yes because with Rock Band, when it came out, it was like the last year of college for us, 2007, right? That's right, yeah. And Guitar Hero before that was absolutely a college experience. Oh, yeah. That was 2005. Mm -hmm. That was like height of our college time. Prime so. college years. Yeah. So having Rock Band and the full band experience... Um, I idealized it, and I would still idealize now of, and it was almost an easy sell when Rock Band 4 was announced to go, okay, they're going to do another bundle with a, an improved drum set, but still made by Mad Cats. They're going to have a Squire, you know, Fender guitar, still made by Mad Cats, like the originals were. Um, so they're going to have a bundle. Okay, I'll buy it. Like, that was my first reaction. But I still think now, having years removed from the original uh, game is... As much as I loved Rock Band, I ended up playing it solo most of the time. Um, you know, even when I had roommates, and even when there were parties, I noticed over time, at least in my social circles, Rock Band was fun, but it wasn't, like, the preeminent thing that people did during parties, or... Mm -hmm. Unless you set up, like, hey, you want to play Rock Band, have people over, like, you made it an event? Yeah, yeah. Um, if there was a, just a party that wasn't related to it someone would play it, but it would kind of be this, like, isolating factor. Was it kind of like Wii Sports almost, where, like, at first people were like, oh, this is the new hotness, this is cool, all kinds of people want to try it, but then, like, it kind of faded out after a while? Yeah, at least from my experience. That was mine, too. Yeah. Except the only difference is, like, if I, like you said, if you you had, if I invited people over to play it, or, like, I invited right. my friends who play a lot of games to play it, the people who actually, like, did put in that solo time, did learn the instruments, did learn how to play it more, that was really fun, too, but right. again, it was a smaller crowd. Yeah, and I think that that would happen again now. Um, 
even if there's a renewed interest in the series, and there obviously must be from whatever surveys Harmonix got back and the whole reason they're announcing it now. But I think, and this sounds so old, is as much as I want to get the game, I've gotten rid of every single plastic instrument I owned, even from Guitar Hero 2. I have, everything is gone. I never owned, you know, the pro-level stuff, so it was easy for me to go, well, this was kind of broken anyway. I'm just going to toss it out or give it to Goodwill. Um, I don't have any of that. I would basically have to buy the bundle. I would have to spend probably what's going to be a $200 thing. Probably. I mean, that's what the first bundle was, I think. Or like 170 Yeah. So that's that's not nothing. And even if I can do it, I just think about... I don't want to have another collection of plastic shit that kind of sits awkwardly in the corner. And I don't... It sounds bad because I play games and I will always play games. It's It feels like I'm uh, I'm being unfair to rock band but like now i feel too old for it in a way at least amassing this amount of stuff hmm. i'm talking about potentially buying a house my partner and i and, and she and i are in that process and like i think there's another thing to move like it's not it's not <laughs> like that would be hard but i think it's like this or the dog which we yeah. <laughs> it's it's not such drastic of a choice but at the same time, it's just it's practicality. Like, am I gonna? It's is it diminishing returns for me now at yeah. this at this age, which feels weird to say, being twenty eight. But yeah. still, as much as I loved playing the drums, even though it never felt like playing real drums, let me just say that I always had a problem with the drums on Rock Band because as a, as a drummer, I respect your opinion. Thank you. Uh, but the guitar was fun. I never got to do the keyboard, but once at your place. Oh, that's um, good. So all I of can that. Play that part from so centerfold still. <laughs> And that, that is, the, those moments with Rock Band, when you're playing with people who are competent, or you're just playing yourself and you, you just nail a solo or a song, like, you can't, you can't forget those moments. Those are, those are priceless. But it just seems like it's still a barrier if you're not already involved in the ecosystem, like in your case, where you have so much DLC, you have some of these legacy instruments, it's easier for you to just pick up that new game and get right back to it. Like, it's it's quicker to get that enjoyment level. For me, I now have a hurdle of, I'm going to have to buy all those instruments. Even if I borrowed some, it wouldn't be the same. Yeah. I'm going to have to get all the instruments. I'm going to have them stored here. Do I really want that? I really didn't have that much DLC to begin with. Um, do I want to buy more DLC? Like, all these questions that come up, the series is great, but I think it's now just going to succeed based on the people that were the, the hardcore enthusiasts from day one people hmm. like you and i hope it does better and expands and it keeps going but i think i'm just i will play it with you i will play it at friends houses but i don't know if i actually need to buy it anymore it's a it's an interesting perspective because I, I i have a feeling that it's not going to blow up like it did the first time mm -hmm. like 2007 2008 when guitar hero 3 or like i guess 2008 when warriors of rock came out or what the hell was it called no guitar hero world tour was the first full band guitar hero. Yeah. And Rock Band 2 came out at the same time. I feel like that was the pinnacle of like plastic instrument saturation. Right. Everybody had a, like people bought Band Hero. <laughs> Do you remember that? With like Taylor Swift songs? Oh my and, God, yeah. Yeah, there was all kinds of stupid shit out there. And let alone all of the derivative, the Aerosmith Guitar Hero, the Beatles Rock Band, all of the yeah. separate band games. Like it was huge and at you, the time. And you wonder why my, my gamer score is so <clears throat> artificially inflated on those consoles. <laughs> It's because I played through Guitar Hero Aerosmith on Expert in one night and walked away with like 950 from that. And I was just like, all right, people are going to know about my shame, but it's done. Now I know why I can't catch up. 
Oh, God. And then you look at, like, Metallica, mm-hmm. Green Day Rock Band. Lego Rock Band was great, though. Don't let anyone tell you otherwise. I completely forgot about that game. That was really cool. There was a Lego Rock Band. Just to give you an idea of how oversaturated this fucking market was. <laughs> that was the shark, and it jumped. Do you? Yeah, you jump a shark in that game, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, Traveler's Tales knows how to make a joke about right. itself. Um, yeah, you're right. I'll buy it. I'll have it. You can come over and play it. I, I'll need people to come over and play it. I'm happy being that host still because that, yeah. that was the thing I like doing. I like having people over, like I like having people over for game nights. I love having Rock Band be one of those games. Yeah. I just uh, I think you're right though. Though like barring some unforeseen amazing like co- like collision of people having too much money and suddenly everyone gets social again. I don't see the, like these bundles moving like crazy like they used to. Especially so. as Harmonix has said in all of these interviews when it was announced, they are going back to basics. They are going to emulate the Rock Band 1 experience, which, you know, having played 2 and played a little bit of 3, I didn't own it, but um, seeing, as they rightly uh, uh, determined, how far away they got from the initial concept of just like a band experience of playing through a career of just a score. Um, just, it got so diluted, even though it was a much stronger series than Guitar Hero ever was after two, after it was no longer under their tutelage. Uh, but um, that just makes me feel like they're making this game because they know just because you're here, the fans like you will buy it and have not had an ability to buy a game like that in a while. And that's fair. Like, that's a smart market decision of they know that there's still these many thousands of people downloading songs or playing songs or whatever it is each week. They have the numbers. They have the stats. They know whatever their marketing plan is that a certain number of people are likely to buy it. It's smart. But you're right that it's not going to blow up like it did and especially if they're going to make just a core band experience and not try to revolutionize rhythm games again they're just going to make a better more reserved maybe is a word for it core strong rock band experience that has been gone now for however many years uh five five yeah so i i still play rock band probably once every month or two like i'm that weird holdout who still gets a lot of enjoyment out of it but you know it's mostly solo these days Mm -hmm. Um, I'm like Stan's dad at the arcade. <laughs> um, but I still soldier on. So we'll see how it comes along. I mean, I'm just, I'm just glad it's happening. Like, even That's, if it is yeah. a smaller, like a swan song for this whole genre, like, whatever. I'm I'm just happy that there's still people still care about it. That gives me hope that I'll find people to play with online and offline. And it is crazy that after this whole determination that the market had crashed, that all rhythm games have died, that they are bringing it back. I doubt that Guitar Hero will come back. I've heard rumors that it will, but I don't know who's going to make it because Neversoft's gone. Right. So They form some sort of Frankenstein, Activision forms some sort of Frankenstein team to just do it, and they may, depending on how this new rock band goes. I mean, that could be... It will never be the same... Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) It will never be the same arms race or Cold War like it was eight years ago, but... It's not a scene. It's a goddamn arms race. (laughs) Another song you can play... In rock band. This is a rock band podcast now. <laughs> this is a My Chemical Romance podcast now. <laughs> or is that Fall Out Boy? It's all the same to me. I think it's I'm Fall sorry. Out Boy. I'm, I'm, no, I'm sorry. No, I'm sorry. It's all the same to me. Two artists you can buy DLC for in rock band. <laughs> uh, so yeah, I own an Xbox One. 
to eventually play Rock Band. In the meantime, yeah. I'm playing Assassin's Creed. And uh, we should probably wrap up here, but I do want to mention that I'm having a lot of fun on the very last chapter of the second and so far final of the Danganronpa games. Which are... You mentioned that you were curious about what these things are, and I don't know if I can give you a good answer. But <laughs> well, they're, they're visual novels? They're visual novels that incorporate... Um, well, what's a visual? What's a visual novel? To, um, the, the gist. It's a picture book. So if you remember, like Clifford, right? Um, it's designed to teach you like letters and concepts about like feelings and sharing in a uh, game form mm-hmm. on the Vita. Except this is like a forty-hour game that has just reams of text and complex characters that you have to understand. A really outlandish story, but also very internally consistent logic and tons of mysteries to solve that all revolve around teenagers killing each other because that's it's Japanese. Of course. If you hadn't guessed that from the initial description, yeah, you know. <laughs> a 40-hour visual novel exclusively on the Vita about teenagers. Yeah, they're going to kill each other because it's, <laughs> it's a Japanese trope. But um, I don't know what the hell makes these games so compelling, but I think it's a combination of just, like, sharp localization with, like, really interesting characters and a, a wide cast, cast of characters. It's um, at least 15 characters in each of the games, and they're all, for the most part, different characters. Uh, and this excellent, like... The series really nails this whole concept of, like, the the lovable villain. Like, just so larger than life and so, like, awful and evil. But so, like, wonderfully, like, you, you almost root for the bad guy. Um, in, the, in this game, it's a stuffed animal bear named Monokuma. Who is just... I don't even know where to go with it. But just the the greatest, most horrible thing ever. And, like, uh, it, it's just... It's bizarre. Because, like, you feel like on some level you're reading, like, a teenage, like, drama manga or something. Like... Mm-hmm. It's a high school drama. You and you spend your free time going out and hanging out with these people to learn about them better and to become better friends with them to unlock rewards. And then someone goes and kills someone else, and you have to like go investigate the crime scene and like piece together clues and like um, that. I think is what makes the game really interesting because the the climax of the game is always these courtroom showdowns where you try and prove who did it. To um, not to not sound ignorant of it, but the, is it like an Ace Attorney? Part at that at that stage of the game, or? yeah, but it's better okay. um, because it's it's structured in a way where in Ace Attorney, I feel like it's very binary. Like you get into a conversation and you can't leave it. You get like five strikes, and if you mess up, you're out. I only played the first one, so I don't know if it right, changes right. much. But uh, you have a limited pool of evidence, and this it's like there's twenty to twenty five pieces of evidence evidence at any one time, and you hear like people's testimonies and like arguments, and you have to know how to interject at the right time to spot inconsistencies, and it has like this very intuitive use of like text and like highlighted. Mm-hmm like words so if you spot a contradiction in the highlighted text you grab the right truth bullet which is your evidence uh rompa by the way means something about like bullet truth okay or like hope or something weird anyway you shoot your truth bullet at the contradiction and that's how you advance the the procedure mm-hmm. and then eventually um basically the stakes are if you uh, um the only way to graduate from this school um is to get away with murder and so you have to kill one of your classmates, you're, you know, and like, that's complicated, delightful thing. Yeah. Uh, and if you get away with it and people don't find out that you're the one who did it, they don't, they don't vote for you in the school trial. Everyone else is executed and you can walk away and graduate. But if they catch the killer and vote for them and that person, then that person gets executed and they're all still stuck playing the same high school killing game that they can't escape from. Wow. So... Um, the Where's t- this concept? Like, is this wholly original to this game, or is it using tropes of Japanese literature, society, culture, manga? I mean, the characters are all deeply 
like stooped in stereotypes of characters. Like for example, in the first game, you have the otaku, the ultimate uh-huh. uh, fan fiction writer. So every character in this game goes to this exclusive high school called Hope's Peak, which is like supposed to be the best and the brightest of that generation to be like cultivated and like go on to succeed. Mm-hmm. It's in Tokyo or something, and um, they recruit what are called ultimate students. So like there's the ultimate affluent progeny who's like the heir to a business like conglomerate the ultimate fan fiction writer who is this like and again this is super japanese like they don't they don't handle <laughs> no. so yeah, like he's this incredibly obese character who like just goes on about how he like only lusts after 2d characters and has no interest in real world women <laughs> joe um, gamer like the body pillow owner type guy yeah yeah uh the ultimate uh, clairvoyant who is actually just like a stoned hippie basically mm-hmm. um the ultimate gamer who's this like uh very quiet soft-spoken but clever so very larger than life caricatures yeah they're definitely larger than life but that's part of what makes it so fun it's like their characters feel so vivid as a result because they're so consistent Mm -hmm. and the way they react to these scenarios is just like usually hilarious like even though it's a game about teenagers killing each other it manages to stay funny throughout and like that's such a rare quality in games especially visual novels which are so usually so serious and plotting yeah like i love 999 and virtue's last reward which are made by the same developer uh, spike chunsoft but um, these are funny as hell. I love those game, those other games for their interesting plot and like, but they're really kind of heavy-handed and kind of, um, kind of wear on you if you play too much at once. But this like is they just take like themselves seriously. The other ones they do, yeah. I mean, yeah. there's some humor too, but it's not as well delivered. These are just like delightful. Like okay. they're just like horrible, awful things are happening, and you have this like plush bear forcing the students to kill each other and making jokes at their expense the whole time. And it's just, like, so twisted and awesome. I, I don't know. I just... Deliciously saccharine, ridiculous. Exactly. It's just, you don't see that kind of thing in a game done right. And it's just, both games just nail it. It's, um, I don't know, to the six people in the world who own a Vita, um, you need to play these games. If you don't own a Vita, I, this is a good reason to consider getting one. So, is, I mean, is it, if for those six people who own the Vita, is it for everyone or does it require like this desire to have a cerebral hmm. investigation plotting strategy visual novel game that is not just a action shooting oriented game like who who wants to play this game? that's a good point um i think it, it i think it could have a wide appeal but you have to have a couple things going in uh one you need to know that you're in for a lot of text and a lot of dialogue most of it's spoken on some level uh, although sometimes they use just like the short audio cues that like fire emblem uses where it's like they say a sentence but they just say like you hear like one or two words like hey or no that's stupid or you know battle yeah Yeah. (laughs) battle (laughs) um so you, you need to be ready for like a story that takes a while to get going like if you're a fan of jrpgs you're probably used to that uh, this is better than like recent Final Fantasies in terms of its plot, so don't worry. Mm-hmm. Uh, you also need to, um, I think, have some familiarity with how like just Japanese anime tropes. Like, I don't watch anime these days. I haven't watched anime series but since. If you ever watched any, you probably yeah. picked up. You on... picked up on some of like the the visual cues, like the sweat drops, or like the weird like nose bubble when they're sleeping. Like, <laughs> you're gonna see a lot of those little things in here. No. But uh, the localization is excellent. Like the characters come to life even without knowledge of these tropes, and like. Um, it's, it's just a very delightfully twisted, fun, engrossing game. Like, it's one of those rare games where, like, I can't stop thinking about the plot when I'm not playing it. Mm-hmm. Right now I'm in the middle of the final trial of, of the second game, and I'm just, like, going crazy wondering how it's going to end. So, um, talking about it right now has made me wonder why we haven't ended the podcast yet. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's but, impressive, is to actually have a game that 
follows you and yeah. makes you think outside of its world when you're playing it. Because very few It's do rare. That. I think like that and the Talos Principle are the only games in recent years that have really done that to me. Mm-hmm. They're different, but they both require a lot of text and a lot of thinking about the puzzles in the world you're in, like the, yeah. the why of what's happening. Cause cerebral. You have to solve the mystery in, all, in each of those games, actually, of why this is happening and what's actually happening on the outside mm-hmm. and how do those things come together. So if you love like piecing together mysteries in that regard or like you know you love anything like on that sort of conspiracy theory type level like it's super engrossing so well, uh, if i ever actually own a vita if that ever accidentally happens to you yeah you should check it out okay cool and that's it for me excellent i think that is it for me too cool uh, in that case, I won't belabor things too long, um, but I will say that uh, we appreciate you guys for listening. Aaron, thank you for talking through this stuff with me. I know I kind of got a little long-winded there with the whole game engine thing, but <laughs> your patience is Well, a lot of your passions were brought up during this conversation. Uh, rock so band, okay. game development, and visual novels with horrible stereotypes in them. It's just like a yep. triple threat for me. Um, but yeah, Aaron... Uh, Thanks for the great conversation. Uh, you want to tell people where they can find you? Yes, you can find me at Aaron Thayer on Twitter. Um, on gaming networks, I'm usually A-T-H-A-Y, or at least on some, A-T-H-A-Y, because for some reason it was taken on the PlayStation. Gotcha. Non-dash. So. Uh, Aaron, as our resident Skyrim enthusiast, did you see the news about the Kenny Loggins plugin? No. Yeah. No. In the Steam Workshop, you can get the Danger Zone Kenny Loggins uh, plugin, which changes we, all your battle music to Danger Zone. Are we done here? Because I need to go download that right now. Yeah. We're, okay. Yeah. Okay. You can get up. I will go. finish yeah, this. I'm going right now. Uh, <laughs> and you can find me. Uh, my name is Nick Cummings at on Twitter at Nick Cummings or on gaming networks as Ymog W H Y M O G. Don't ask me what it stands for. It doesn't really mean anything. I made it up when I was desperate for a new handle about a decade ago, and that's that's all I'm going to say there. Uh, in the future, you can always find us at uh, on Stitcher Radio, uh, SoundCloud, and uh, of course, you'll always find us on iTunes, which is actually, um, if you want to leave us a review or just a comment there, that'd be wonderful. It's a very helpful way for us to pick up new li- listeners and kind of give pe- people an authentic uh, interpretation of what we're all about. You know, it's uh, it's got to come from you guys, not from us, because we can say whatever we want and no one will ever believe us. It's like a Bill Murray story, just constantly living it. <laughs> Uh, if you have any questions for us for a future episode, send it to ludinist at gmail.com. Uh, we'll read some questions if we get them on a future episode and be happy to dissect them. Uh, Aaron loves to talk about uh, JRPG tropes. It's his favorite topic, especially visual novels, so send those to him. Uh, I'm happy to cover anything related to... Uh, what do you play these days? Skyrim! Yeah, I'm happy to talk about Skyrim, a game that I love to death. It. It's just yep. the best game I've ever played, and I... Just love yeah, it. Yeah, you've you've clocked in over 300 hours on that, right, Nick? Yeah, and you've only clocked 50 somehow. Yeah. And you never finished it. If you weren't paying attention, those are actually the opposite truths. Today's opposite day. Yeah. Bitches. Uh, speaking of 90s tropes, you should watch The Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt. And uh, thanks for listening and uh, for subscribing. And we'll be back uh, next week with a new episode for you guys. Thank you. Thank you.